Are they indestructible? No. If This is from um, housebeautiful.com. Um, no, if you've ever killed a cactus, you are not alone. The easiest way is by overwatering, poor drainage, and using the wrong compost. Ordinary potting compost holds water well, which is a huge bonus for most plants, but not for cacti, because they need very good drainage. If you want to keep them alive, it's best to use specialist cactus compost instead. Uh, two, do they flower? Excuse me. Cacti are are all flowering plants, but some have more prominent blooms in our in our few, such as Mammillaria, uh, Gymnocalcium, and Peridia, that will flower quite easily with impressive, colorful displays. Oh, I did not know that really. I never really picture a cactus as being colorful. I just picture a cactus being green. But I love cactuses. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Maybe it's like the desert. Maybe it just all comes back to like my obsession with I guess I'm just obsessed with, with like Southern California. Even though you don't really associate cactuses with them. That's with palm trees. You think cactus, you think Arizona. And I don't really want definitely don't want to live in Arizona. So <laughs> way too hot. Um how do I get them to flower? Cacti flower on fresh growth, so if your plant just sits there unchanging year after year, it's very unlikely to flower. What you should do is get the plant to follow its natural growth cycle. It needs to go dormant in winter, then wake up in spring. So put it somewhere dry and cold, but not dark, um, over winter, and stop watering altogether. Then in spring, give it as much sunshine as possible and start to water it. That's so interesting. So, yeah, keep it in a dark place during the winter and then sunshine in the spring. Oh, get those flowers. Which are the best varieties for beginners? Oh, this is good for me. I need to figure out which cactus I want to get. Uh, moon cacti have very colorful tops, usually red or yellow. These aren't flowers, so the colors they're all year round. Bunny ears, also known as polka dot cacti, have spots of golden bristles against a green background, so they look modern and geometric. Probably the most common variety is a tiny pincushion cactus. It's easy to grow and has lovely little pink flowers. <laughs> I like the pink the pincushion. Uh, I like it. Bunny ears. Has, it's a golden, okay. And the moon cacti. I like the name. I think just based on the name moon cacti, it's like moon cheese, moon cacti. Very colorful. I would get that one. I'd go for the moon cacti. Just because I like saying the name. <laughs> um, question five, how do you handle them? Carefully, either with very thick gloves or use folded newspaper to loop around the top. Hmm. Are all cacti prickly? No. What we usually think of as cacti are desert cacti. There are also forest cacti without the bristles. However, the range available as house, houseplants is quite small. That's crazy. I had no idea that... I seriously was one of those people that thought... I was one of those naive people that went my whole life thinking that all cactuses are prickly. Um, how long do they live? 
In the wild, cacti can live for hundreds of years. What? Oh my god. That's mind-boggling. That's insane. That's That just blows my mind. I don't know why, but... Hundreds? Like multiple hundreds of years. It's like many generations. Um, indoors, they may survive for 10 years or more. Oh, wow. So we, we really cut down their lives. <laughs> so it's like... It's even worse than when people put um, animals in zoos. Because I'm sure it doesn't it doesn't cut their life down by 200 years. Jeez. They can only live indoors for 10 years? Wow. The trouble with old ones is that every single, every single knock, scratch, or blemish they get stays with them. So they tend to look less appealing as they get older. No. I think it's like that Japanese... Um, it's the Japanese perspective. What was that Japanese per, uh, principle? Man, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember it now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble remembering it. Oh my gosh, imperfection, Japanese imperfection. It's um, we talked about wabi sabi. Yeah, we talked about wabi sabi. It's the beauty in imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete. So, I'm saying. I'm saying that the cactuses with the bruises are, you just got to look at them with a wabi-sabi. Look at them. That's what makes them special. Those like little, the little weird things about them. The little eccentric, eccentricities. The weird, the weird stuff. It's just like with people, you know? It's the weird stuff about people that makes them special. It makes them interesting, worth talking to. I think, like you ever talk to someone who's like, not weird at all, just <laughs> completely by the book and very normal. Those people, I I, I don't really talk to those people because they're so boring. <laughs> Maybe for like a minute, and then, and then you kind of just you lose steam because they're so. Weirdness is good. That's what my point is. It's good to be weird. It's good to be different. Good to. I think it is. I mean, not not like. I mean, it's good to. I'm not saying it's good to be different and bring people down and like be negative i'm saying it's good to be different and like in a positive way like bring people up like still work together with people and stuff but i i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say um let's see temple of artemis this is a one of the seven wonders the temple of artemis it's a greek temple located in ephesus near the modern town of Selçuk in present-day Turkey. Um, By 401 AD, it had been ruined or destroyed. Only foundations and fragments of the last temple remain at the site. Wow. The next, excuse me, the next greatest and last form of the temple, funded funded by the Ephesians themselves, is described it, Described in Antipater of Sidon's list of the world's seven wonders. Here we go. I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging of gardens, and the Colossus of the Sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, the vast tomb of Masalus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. Man, 
people spoke <laughs> like it's just I don't know I had a funny thought just now like I wonder if there was like a what's the right word for it what's the politically correct word <laughs> I don't care about politically correct what is this what, what was there like white trash was there white trash back in the day because <laughs> like were there rednecks was there white trash because like if you're talking even <laughs> even even if you were like um you know what I mean like I don't know Duck Dynasty or something or Honey Boo Boo and, and you were just saying <laughs> but but if you spoke if your senses sounded like lo apart from Olympus the sun never looked on aught so grand if like you spoke that poetically then I don't know I just think that'd be a hilarious thing I don't know I don't know what my point was there but uh like I like to think everyone yeah like no matter what class you were Everyone spoke with that, like, elegance back then. Huh. But, I mean, I don't know. I guess everyone still speaks the same today, though. What am I What am I talking about? Like, like I mean, if I'm thinking, like, English, I'm thinking America, I'm thinking our culture. I mean, I guess there's just, like, act, like different parts of the country have different sayings, accents of different sayings and whatnot. But, in general... We all, we're all still saying the same message, I would say. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, Statue of Zeus at Olympia. This is this is Greeks. Um, oh, my gosh. Let's take a little break from the Seven Wonders. Let's, um... Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, let's take a little break. We'll come back and talk to Statue of Zeus um, in a second. Let's read a little bit more of a... Our good old friend Carl Duker's book, Night Hoops. This is chapter four. I'm digging it. I'm loving it. Ba da ba ba ba. Here we go. And then it was Thursday, game day. The halls of Bothell High buzzed with excitement. Kids I didn't even know were coming up to me. Go get them. You can do it. We're behind you. Game time was 7.30. I was in the locker room dressing at 6.30 when Trent came in. He nodded to me, but that was it. The other guys filed in one by one. They were nervous, not talking much. In our first game against Franklin, Trent and I scored all those points when they weren't taking us seriously. There'd been there'd be no sneak up on them tonight. Half an hour before game time, O'Leary went to the blackboard. The chalk banged as he spelled out in huge capitals the word team. Then he put about ten exclamation points next to it, smacking the blackboard so hard that the chalk finally broke in half one piece flying across the room. This is it, gentlemen. This is what we've been working for. This game, these couple of hours, all of us, together. Everything moved quickly then. The door leading to the court was thrown open, and I was swept along into the throbbing gym. We did our passing drill. The ball boys threw out a half dozen balls, and we shot around. The horn sounded, and the next thing I knew, the second stringers were moving to the bench, and along with Darren and Tom, Luke and Trent, I head to the center court. Then the, t the toss went up and the ball came to me. The instant I touched it, I came alive from head to toe. The whole world was a rectangle, 90 feet long and 50 feet wide. And what happened inside, it made sense. What happened inside, it made sense. It's tough to run the fast break early in a big game. The defense is pumped. At every practice, all, 
all they've heard is get back on defense. Nobody's tired. Nobody's discouraged. Everybody's hustling. You can blow a team out, out of the game late in the half or early in the third quarter. But in the first quarter, it's your set offense that's got to carry you. I'd always run our set offense through Trent, and I started out that night doing the same. But Franklin had scouted us. The second Trent touched the ball, they ran a swarming double-team trap at him. He didn't panic and didn't force stuff. He did exactly what he was supposed to do, which was zip the ball back to me. I swung it around to the open man, usually Luke or Darren, on the weak side. Time after time, they had good looks at the hoop. 15, 18-footers, the kind of shots they could make in their sleep. Only now, they couldn't get anything to drop. After three minutes, we were down six points. O'Leary called timeout. Relax, he said to Luke and Darren. You can make those shots. But they didn't. That made Franklin's double team all the more tenacious. Two Franklin guys would totally commit to Trent every time he touched the ball. They'd even double team him on rebounds to keep him off the glass. He couldn't score. He couldn't rebound. And Luke and Darren kept missing four out of five every five shots they took. Our fans had filled the gym. They were dying to scream their lungs out. But there was nothing to cheer. Franklin's lead grew to seven by the end of the first quarter, 11 at the end of the second. The locker room at the half was a morgue. Twice, O'Leary went to the blackboard and started to write something. Both times, he stopped. Finally, he smacked the blackboard with his piece of chalk. The noise snapped us to attention. Gentlemen, he said, his eyes scanning the room. I know you're hustling, giving me 100%. I'm not faulting anybody's effort. If anything, you're trying too hard. Be yourselves. Play your game. But the third quarter wasn't all that different from the first half. Franklin stuck with their game plan, double-teaming Trent. I stuck with ours, working the ball to the open guy. But Darren and Luke stayed cold. Their shooting percentage must have been below 20. Franklin's 11-point lead grew to 14. The score was 53-39 when the horn sounded, ending the third quarter. We had to try something different, and I knew what it was. On our first possession of the fourth quarter, I dumped the ball into Trent. The double team came. He popped the ball back out. Darren was open to my right, but instead of dishing it to him, I stepped back behind the arc and fired off a three-pointer. I had a nice stroke on the ball. Good backsman, good height. It was like all those shots in my backyard, absolutely in the heart. Franklin missed their shot, and again I brought the ball down. This time I didn't even dump it in. I went to the top of the key, set my feet, and let it fly. Perfect. Another three-pointer. The net again snapping as the ball swished through. Our fans came out of their seats with a roar. We'd played 20 seconds, and Franklin's 14-point lead was down to 8. The Franklin point guard brought the ball up. I'd been matching up against him all game. In all game, he'd been totally in control, cocky even. But now there was something different about him. I could see a little doubt in his eyes, a little fear. Two three-pointers in your face will do that to you. He was tentative with the entry pass. I got a hand on it, deflecting it forward. Darren picked it up, raced towards the hoop. I trailed behind. He drove to the hoop, went up, and then lofted a soft little pass for me. I was so surprised I actually fumbled it a little. But then I got it under control and cozied in the lay-in. Eight straight points, Franklin by six. They scored on their next trip, slowing our run. But they didn't regain the momentum. I made sure of that with two more hoops in the next couple minutes. The game that looked out of reach was back within our grasp, and with plenty of time left. Their coach called a timeout. Look for a change in their defense, O'Leary warned us. 
They're going to come after you, Nick. I'm sure of it, so don't force things. If you're not open, pass the ball. O'Leary called it exactly right. For the rest of the game, Franklin smothered me. But confidence is contagious, is as contagious as fear. Luke nailed a jumper from the corner. Trent scored on a running eight-footer. Darren sank a set shot from beyond the arc, and our crowd went crazy because for the first time in the game, we had the lead. Then came another jumper from the corner by Darren, a miss by Trent, and but a putback by McShane. The baskets poured down like rain. Just before the buzzer, I sunk a final three-pointer, pushing the final margin to 12. The horn sounded, and we raced off the court, arms raised above our heads. As our fans chanted, We're number one! We're number one! We're number one! Boom. Bothell did it. I just got goosebumps right there. I don't know why. Maybe it's because... Maybe it's because I know exactly where they are. Exactly where they're... Where Carl Duker is talking about. Because that's my gym. Because that's where I went to high school. It's just so weird. It's like reading a book about like a place. A place that you that you know that you were at. That you went to school at. And it just makes the... It makes me picture it so much more, you know? But I guess it's different, because you always picture something when you're reading. But now I know I know exactly what he's talking about. Like, I know, actually know what it looks like. <laughs> it's weird. Like, it brings it to, it's like a breaking the fourth wall of books. Um, So I'm looking at the statue of Zeus at Olympia. It's a giant seated figure, 43 feet tall, made by the Greek sculptor Phidias. Around 435 BC, the sanctuary of Olympia, Greece, and erected in the temple of Zeus there. It's a sculpture of ivory plate, ivory plates and gold panels over a wooden framework. It represents the god Zeus sitting on an elaborate cedar wood throne ornamented with ebony, ivory, gold, and precious stones. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it was lost and destroyed during the 5th century. A.D. with no copy ever being found, and details of his form are known only from ancient Greek descriptions and representations on coins. Very interesting. Um, how did they get lost? It doesn't make any sense. According to Roman historian Suetonius, the Roman emperor Caligula, oh, I've heard of Caligula, gave orders that such statues of the gods as were especially famous for their sanctity of, or their artistic merit, including that of Jupiter at Olympia, should be brought from Greece in order to remove their heads and put his own in their place. Before this could happen, the emperor was assassinated in 41 AD. His death was supposedly foretold by the statue, which suddenly uttered such a peal of laughter that the scaffolding collapsed and the workmen took to their heels. What? Oh my, they're saying the statue laughed at him. <laughs> oh no. Well, so he was going to remove the head and have his own. That's Caligula. This this is Caligula. I've heard of Um, Caligula. Who's Caligula? The, the son of the popular Roman general Germanicus and the Augustus's granddaughter Agrippina the Elder. Caligula was born into the first ruling family of the Roman Empire, conventionally known as the Julio-Julio-Claudian dynasty. 
Germanicus' uncle and adoptive father, Tiberius, succeeded Augustus as emperor of Rome in AD 14. So what, what was famous about Caligula, though? Although he was born Gaius Caesar after Julius Caesar, he acquired the nickname Caligula, which means little soldier's boot, from his father's um, soldiers during their campaign in Germania. When Germanicus died in, at Antioch in AD 19, Agrippina, Agrippina returned with her six children to Rome, where she became entangled in a bitter feud with Tiberius. The conflict eventually led to the destruction of her family, with Caligula as the sole male survivor. Lone survivor. Talked about that Mark Wahlberg episode, episode two, Stars Born. <laughs> lone survivor. An old, an uh, ancient Greek lone survivor. Untouched by the daily intrigue, deadly intrigues, Caligula accepted an invitation in AD 31 to join the emperor on the island of Capri, where Tiberius had withdrawn five years earlier. Following the death of Tiberius, Caligula succeeded his adoptive grandfather as emperor on AD 37. There are few surviving sources about the reign of Caligula, although he is described as noble and moderate emperor during the first six months of his rule. After this, the sources focus upon his cruelty, sadism, um, extravagance, sadism, sadism, extravagance, and sexual perversion, presenting him as an insane tyrant. While the reliability of these sources is questionable, it is known that during his brief reign, Caligula worked to increase the unconstrained personal power of the emperor, as opposed to countervailing powers with the principate. So he just worked to get more power. He directed much of his attention to ambitious construction projects and luxurious dwellings for himself and initiated the construction of two aqueducts in Rome, the Aqua Claudia and the Anio Novus. What's an aqua? During his, during his reign, the empire annexed the client kingdom of Mauritania as a province. Uh, in early AD 41, Caligula was assassinated as a result of a conspiracy by officers of the Praetorian Guard, senators, and courtiers. The conspirators' attempt to use the opportunity to restore the Roman Republic was thwarted, however. On the day of the assassination of Caligula, the Praetorians declared Caligula's uncle, Claudius, the next Roman Empire, um, Emperor. Although the Julio-Claudian dynasty continued to rule the empire until the fall of his nephew Nero in AD 68, Caligula's death marked the official end of Julius Caesar's male line. Hmm. Okay. Very good. That's a little Caligula talk. That's your Caligula talk for the day. Um, let's get out. It won't let me out of there. <laughs> it's working... It's working against me. Wikipedia is working against me. So let's go. Wow, we haven't done this for a while. Let's actually get back to Tom Tommy Hanks. <laughs> let's go back to Tommy Hanks' IMDb page. So TV series documentary from 2003 called Freedom, A History of Us. He plays a bunch of different characters. Abraham Lincoln, Charles E. Wood, Jacob Coxey, reporter Daniel Boone, and Paul Revere. What is that, like a drunk history? It sounds like a sober drunk history. Sober history. <laughs> uh, it's just normal history. Sober history. 
2004, he is in The Lady Killers as Professor G.J.H. Dorr. Um, this is 104 Minutes, rated R, comedy crime thriller. An eccentric, if not charming, Southern professor and his crew poses a classical ensemble in order to rob a casino all under the nose of unsuspecting but sharp old landlady. Um, what is this, like Ocean's Eleven or something? What? What? It's a classic, it's robbed a casino ensemble. Uh, 2004, The Terminal. He plays Victor Narvosky. This is another one. I've heard of this one, but heard it was really good. 128 minutes, PG-13, uh, rom-com drama. Excuse me. An Eastern European tourist unexpectedly finds himself stranded at JFK Airport and must take up temporary residence there. He plays an Eastern... Oh yeah, I guess his name is Victor Neckert Naversky. Um, 2004, Elvis has left the building. He plays Mailbox Elvis. What is this? Mailbox Elvis? Is this like the Spider-Verse? <laughs> it's like the Spider-Verse of of Elvis movies. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That would be so funny. That'd be so funny if they made a Elvis version of the Spider-Verse and just like drunk Elvis, fat Elvis, cool, like rock Elvis in his prime, um, all the different Elvises, <laughs> black Elvis, white Elvis, Asian Elvis, <laughs> Mexican Elvis, <laughs> all the Elvises. I, I mean, there is the Elvis convention in like what Las Vegas. Oh, what what movie was that? That may have was that Paul Blart two. That may have been Paul Blart two, when they made the Elvis joke. About I mean, not the only Elvis joke ever, but about like the, all the Elvises on the plane going to Vegas. I think it was Paul Blart two actually. I think it was. Uh, 2004, The Polar Express. Hero Boy, Father, Conductor, Hobo, Scrooge, Santa Claus. Jeez. Tom Tom Hanks loves playing different characters in the same movie. This is, this was a great book. I think I read this book. It's got a classic cover. Like, the book covers, it's like a train in the dark, and the, you can see the, the light going out there, the fog. Oh, a train in the snow. Nothing like a train ride in the snow. Uh, 100 Minutes, Red G, animation, adventure, comedy. On Christmas Eve, a young boy embarks on a magical adventure to the North Pole on the Polar Express while learning about friendship, bravery, and the spirit of Christmas. All right, all right. I'm sure the book's better. <laughs> movie, TV movie, 2004. The Rutles 2, Can't Buy Me Lunch. He plays Tom Hanks, interviewee. What is this? 23 years after the release of the original Rutles documentary, famous artists, actors, and musicians speak out on how the Rutles influence them. Who's the Rutles? Is this a band? Is this a band? It sounds like a, a spin-off of the Beatles. It is a band. The Rudels. <laughs> it's like a knockoff. It's um, a great value version of the Beatles. Wait, no way. No way. 
maybe I must have gotten a hint from, I swear, I did not, I'm, I only glanced at the, at the movie poster, I only glanced at it, but I barely even looked at it, um, the Rudels, they're a rock band, known for their visual and oral pastiches, pastiches, and parodies of, guess what band? The Rolling Stones. No, just kidding. Parodies of the Beatles. That's insane. I mean, that's not that crazy, but that is pretty funny, though. They were right. Like, Rudels. Like, Rudels makes people think Beatles. It's so similar. It's a similar word, I suppose. That's hilarious. I can't believe that. I can't believe it. All right. Here. Let's go back to... Let's go back to the uh, Seven Wonders. Why don't we? Seven Wonders, the ancient world. Where were we? We were in the mausoleum at Harlecarnassus. 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 Which is present-day Bodrum, Turkey. And this is a tomb that was built between 353 and 350 BC. Um, it was... Its elevated tomb structure is derived from the tombs of neighboring Lycia, a territory of uh, territory Masalis had invaded and annexed circa 460 BC, such as the Naride Monument. Uh-huh. The mausoleum was approximately 148 feet in height, and the four sides were adorned with sculptural reliefs, each created by one of four Greek sculptors, Leochares, Briaxis, Scopas of Paros and Timotheus. What does sculptural reliefs mean? Excuse me. Uh, relief. Relief is a sculptural technique where the sculpted elements remain attached to a solid background of the same material. The term relief is from the Latin verb relevo, which means to raise. Okay. Very good. I see. I see. So it's basically like, it's like when, imagine like a, a gold person, a per, imagine like Austin Powers trying to break out of like a gold tomb. I don't know why it has to be Austin Powers, but, and then like the, the outline of his face, if it was like in gold, that would be a, a sculptural relief. Um, The finished structure of the mausoleum was considered to be such an aesthetic triumph that Antipater of Sidon identified it as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was destroyed by successive earthquakes from the 12th to the 15th century, the last surviving of the six destroyed wonders. Oh my gosh. I didn't even realize that. That's so funny. I didn't realize that these were all ancient wonders that had been destroyed. Okay. So it's the last surviving one. Successive earthquakes. Or if it was aftershocks or back-to-back big ones. The Colossus of Rhodes is... This is the next one. A statue of the Greek sun god of Helios erected in the city of Rhodes on the Greek island of the same name by Charis of Lindos in 280 BC. Oh my gosh. I, I know I just said that Italy is probably the country I most want to go to, but Greece... I think Greece might rival Italy. It's it's number two. I'm gonna say Greece is number two. I love those like 
like the picture of like the hillside. It's a famous Greek picture, like a hillside by the water, probably the Mediterranean Sea. Just a bunch of like, like white, like rooftops. I think it's a very specific kind of architecture, but this is a beautiful little Greek town, just a little bubble of civilization. You know, it's a little bubble. It's just, that's like what the hill looks like. Just right on the side of the, it's gorgeous. Oh my God. I could live there. I could live in Greece or Italy. I don't know. <laughs> It'd be tough. I'd, I'd have to learn the language. That's for sure. It'd be weird to live in a place where you don't, man, you just have to learn, like, you have to learn language, right? I mean, I wonder how many people speak English over there. Hmm. That'd be an interesting thing to, I'm gonna say, like, Italy, English, like, I wonder if, like, English speaking, what percent do people speak English? Oh, Italian. Oh, okay. Around 29% of the population speaks English in Italy. So about 30, about three out of every 10 people. That's not, that's not like a super low, that's like a good amount. It's almost enough to conversate with people, almost. I would definitely want to learn a lot of Italian. Now, like if you're going to live there, you got to do the whole thing. You got to go all in, just go all in with it. Learn language, cheer for the soccer team in the World Cup. <laughs> Go create, become a hooligan, do everything. Um, let's see. We're looking at Colossus of Rhodes. It was constructed to celebrate Rhodes' victory over the ruler of Cyprus, Antigonus Monothalamus. Man, there's some big Greek names I've been reading. Um, according to most contemporary descriptions, the Colossus stood approximately 70 cubits or 33 meters which is 108 feet high. So taller than uh, the Jesus statue in Brazil. The approximate height of the statue, which is the approximate height of the Statue of Liberty from feet to crown. For some reason, I thought the Statue of Liberty was like way taller than that for some reason. But I guess I was way off. I thought it was like 500 feet. Um... It collapsed during the earthquake of 226 BC. Although parts of it were preserved, it was never rebuilt. As of 2015, there are tentative plans to build a new Colossus at Rhodes Harbor, although the actual location of the original remains in dispute. Hmm. How do they not know where the original was? When it seems like you'd find some like remains or ruins there or something. Come on, archaeologists, get on it. All right, the Lighthouse of Alexandria. This is the seventh of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is... Wow, this is huge. It's a lighthouse built by the Ptolemaic Kingdom. Um, this is in Greece, right? Yeah, this is... Oh, no, it's in Egypt. This is Alexandria, Egypt. Okay. Um, let's see. It was It was one of the tallest man-made structures in the world for many centuries, estimated to be 330 feet high. Wow. Badly damaged by three earthquakes between 956 AD and 1323, it then became an abandoned ruin. It was the third longest surviving ancient wonder after the mausoleum and the extant uh, Great Pyramid of Giza. Excuse me. 
surviving in part until 1480, when the last of the remnant stones were used to build the citadel of Quit Bay on the site. In 1994, French archaeologists discovered some remains of the lighthouse on the floor of Alexandria's eastern harbor. Wow. In 2016, the Ministry of States of Antiquities, Antiquities in Egypt had plans to turn submerged ruins of ancient Alexandria, including those of the pharaohs, into an underwater museum? What? Underwater museum? What? No way. World's first? Wait, it's going to be the world's first underwater museum? Oh my gosh, this is insane. Alright, here it is. Um, this is according to just web.archive.org. In- instead of removing artifacts from the water and bringing them to Taurus, it will soon be the other way around. Oh my god, that's that's gave me goosebumps right there. I love it. I definitely want to go with this. I've always been obsessed with glass bottom ships. Like I really want to go on one of those. Like a glass bottom boat. Be able to see what's under. That would seem so it'd be so scary though. Well, I bet it'd be scary, but I want to get scared. A <laughs> uh, $150 million museum is being planned that will bring guests to the relics location on the Egyptian seabed. The Ministry of Antiquities in Egypt is planning to turn submerged ruins of ancient Alexandria into an underwater museum, allowing tourists access to 2,500 of subsurface stonework dating back to 365 AD. Designed by French architect Jacques Rougerie, the plans were put on hold for years during a period of regional turmoil, but are now said to be back on track. Fiberglass tunnels will connect waterfront galleries to underwater viewing areas where visitors can see the ruins in context. Oh my gosh. I love it. That's, that's so cool. Oh my god, I'm looking at a couple pictures of it right now. There's just going to be tunnels. That's insane. You're going to you're gonna be able to walk around the bottom of the ocean in tunnels. And just look at ruins. Why is this not already a thing? How's this is awesome though. I I can't wait to go to something like this. Gosh, I'm excited. <laughs> I don't know why. I get more excited about about going to this kind of stuff than like virtual reality and like technology. Like I want to see, I want to see amazing stuff like with my own eyes, like in person. <laughs> you know, I want to like touch it. I want to grab it. Um. Let's see. The museum will feature four tall buildings with fiberglass tunnels to the 22-foot deep viewing platforms. There will be guest submarines that can tour the area, an opportunity to dive around the site for a closer look at the relics. Get oh glass submarines, not guest submarines. <laughs> oh my god. What if you could just rent out a submarine? <laughs> this is our guest submarine. Oh, dude, I've always wanted to go on a submarine too. It seems very scary though. There's just something about under the ocean, under the water that's fascinating to me. But like scuba diving, scuba diving is really scary to me. I don't, it's, it's the part where you can get, you can mess yourself up by going up too fast. I don't like that part. I just don't like, it's too scary. But I'd, I'd be more likely to go in a submarine than a scuba diving probably, I would say. Submarine seems very cool to go in. Uh, many of the treasures in Alexandria were submerged during 
during the Middle Ages due to earthquakes, but now they can be admired once again if plans are approved. Part of the purpose of the project is to further protect the ruins, which are prominent targets for thieves and difficult uh, to police without permanent surrounding infrastructure and round-the-clock eyes on the site. Wow, those are some hard-working thieves. You're <laughs> robbing underwater ruins? Like, that's what I'm talking about. Those guys are scuba diving. <laughs> Think about, like, how much harder, like, that person has to work than some, like, cyber hacker person who just, like, sits at their computer and just <laughs> hacks into something. This person has to, they have to rent scuba equipment and map out the bottom of the ocean. Oh, my God. You have to have so many, so many onions, so many cojones. Just, you have to, you have to be bold, like confidence to be like, not only am I a thief, I'm, a, I'm the Michael Phelps of thieves. Um, wow, the lighthouse of, lighthouse of Alexandria. I love lighthouses too. Lighthouse is another, um, another obsession of mine, I would say. All right, let's do, let's do a few more Washington State facts here. Let's see. The region around eastern Puget Sound developed heavy industry during World War One and World War Two. The Boeing Company became an established icon in the area. During the Great Depression, a series of hydroelectric dams were constructed along the Columbia River as part of a project to increase the production of electricity. This culminated in 1941 with the completion of the Grand Coulee Dam, the largest dam in the United States. During World War II, Seattle was a point of departure for many soldiers in the Pacific, a number of which were quartered at Golden Gardens Park. Golden Gardens, that's really close to, um, that's around the area where I was uh, mowing lawns this past summer in Seattle. It's a famous, it's a well-known uh, beach park in the area. In eastern Washington, the Hanford Works Atomic Energy Plant was opened in 1943. It played a major role in the construction of the nation's atomic bombs. In 1980, the northeast face of Mount St. Helens exploded outward, destroying a large part of the top of the volcano. As of 2004, Washington's population included 6,300 or excuse me, 631,500 foreign-born, which is 10.3% of the state population, and an estimated 100,000 illegal aliens, which is 1.6% of the state population. The six largest uh, reported ancestries in Washington are German, 18.7%, English, 12%, Irish, 11.4%, Norwegian, 6.2%, Mexican, 5.6%, and Filipino, 3.7%. I'm uh, I'm mostly German and Norwegian, I believe. I think those are the two, the two primary ones. Arneson, that's a Norwegian last name. My dad's side, I think my dad's side is mostly Norwegian. Uh, I'm surprised. Actually, I don't know. It's just because the Ballard area... The neighborhood where I was mowing lawns last year, last summer, um, working, working, mowing lawns, you know, doing it, doing a pig, um, the Ballard area, so many Norwegian people and so many, uh, Nordic people like Swedish and Finnish, 
but mainly Norwegian. It's a big Norwegian neighborhood. Uh, Washington is home to many innovative internet companies, including Amazon, Classmates.com, Whitepages.com, and MarchX. The percentage of non-religious people in Washington is the highest of any state, and church membership is among the lowest of all the states. That's interesting. The highest percent of non-religious people in any state in Washington. That's so interesting. I could see it, though. Like People here are super... Not like super like independent minded, very progressive, like very liberal and progressive, but even more than that, just super like independent. And what's the word? Um, what's the, I can't, I can't remember that other, it's like not like liberalism, it's, it's like the independent liberalism. How come I can't remember what it is? But that's okay, I'm, I'll let go. There's lots of that, <laughs> there's lots of that going around here. What is that? Independent. It's not um independent lib liberal oh libertarian yep libertarian that's what the word I was looking for I think um even more than liberalism here in Washington there's lots of libertarians I think like people like <laughs> I don't know maybe not though actually don't don't trust me at all those stats are probably completely bogus I just think there's like so many people here in Washington. Like, a lot of people... Well, I mean, obviously, most of the state's population lives in the Seattle area. So they're, like, close to a city. But I'd say there's also a lot of people who just live in the middle of nowhere here. And they're just out in the woods. And those people are definitely uh, suspicious of the government. <laughs> those, those, are, those are the people with um, the doomsday preppers. <laughs> all that stuff. Um, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Ah, where 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 we where were we? The state of Washington is one of only seven states that does not levy a personal income tax. Property tax was the first tax levied in the state of Washington. Its collection accounts for about thirty percent of the Washington uh, total uh, state and local revenue. Making that money off the property tax. Um, two thousand four. Washington ranked first in the nation in production of red raspberries. What? How come How come we're known for apples, but nobody talks about red raspberries? We should be a Johnny Raspberry Seed up here. <laughs> Jimmy Raspberries. We have 90% of the total production in the United States of red raspberries comes from Washington State. That's insane. Nine out of every... All right, if you're eating raspberries right now... They're probably from Washington State. That's so funny. Oh, well, at least if you're in the U.S. Um, hops. Hops for beers, 75%. Apples is 58.1%. of the, This is of the nation's production. Wow. So, oh my gosh. Washington State produces three quarters of the nation's hops. That's insane. I had no idea. Um, so apples more than half. Sweet cherries, forty seven point three percent. I love some cherries. Cherry, my favorite fruit. Uh pears, forty two point six percent. Concord grapes, thirty nine point three percent, and Niagara grapes, thirty one point six percent. Wait, why would why wouldn't uh Niagara grapes be produced in New York in New York State? By um 
Niagara Falls. That doesn't make any sense. Why would they be in Washington State? <laughs> hmm. Let's see. There are 140 public airfields in Washington, including 16 state airports. So the big uh, airplane state. Washington is home to four of the five longest floating bridges in the world. The Evergreen Point Floating Bridge, Lacey V. Murrow Memorial Bridge, and Homer M. Hadley Bridge over Lake Washington, and the Hood Canal Bridge connecting the Olympic and Kitsap Peninsulas. Big bridge a bridge town and an airfield town. Bridges and airports. We're back to the basics here in Washington. Um, three ships of the United States Navy, including two battleships, have been named USS Washington in honor of the state. United Airlines was originally owned by the Boeing Airplane Company. Did not know that. Popular games, Pictionary, Pickleball, and Cranium were all invented in Washington. I thought it was going to be a third pickle-related, like a uh, picture-perfect or something. Or maybe Pictionary, Pickleball, and Picture-in-Picture, PIP. But no, it's Cranium. <laughs> uh, pickleball, though, the classic um, old people tennis, as I like to call it. <laughs> fun, fun. Uh, seriously, like, I think pickleball is one of those sports that is honestly meant for old people. I don't think it's really meant for young people. I think young people should be playing, uh, what's it called? What's it called? Not racquetball. Not wiffle ball. What's the one with the birdie? Oh my gosh. How come I can't, I can't remember birdie game. What is it? What is it? It's so frustrating. Um, this is crazy. The shuttlecock. Badminton, boom, badminton. That's see, I knew we'd come up with it. It's the shuttlecock, the birdie, and badminton. Um, but yeah, that's the young man's pickleball. <laughs> Badminton's a young man's pickleball for sure. And Pictionary, I don't know where to start there. I mean, we've played it. I've played it for sure. I think it's underrated actually. I like Pictionary. Cranium, we got that one at home. Probably only played it a few times in my life. But um, going back to picture-in-picture picture TV, <laughs> PIP, I think that's so underrated. Nobody talks about it anymore. Nobody, t nobody even uses picture-in-picture picture anymore. Do TVs even have it? I do not know, but they should. People don't appreciate the, the TV anymore. <laughs> they, they lost since phones, since cell phones came about, s smartphones. People don't even they don't appreciate their TV. They lost, they lost respect. <laughs> you got you got respect the TV. Come on. Um, let's see the final. This is your final fun fact for the state of Washington. The town of Arctic was named Arta after the wife of the town founder. The application was misread and the resulted in the unusual spelling of the word Arctic. Oh, huh. Oh, it was it was supposed to be named Arta. Okay, that's so funny. And then they misspelled Arctic. So, like, not like cold. Like, Arctic would be A-R-C-T-I-C. But this is spelled A-R-T-I-C. So it just looks ridiculous. It just makes them look ridiculous. Um, wow, there's your fun facts. Let's get back to Tommy H. We've been... 
I feel like we've been having a jolly old. I'm having a lot of fun right now. Let's do. Excuse me. Let's do um a little more night hoops. Can't get enough of this night hoops. This is chapter five. Here we go. And then we'll go back to Tommy H. In the locker room, all the guys surrounded me. Great game, Nick. Way to step up. I expected that from Luke and Trent, but to hear from Carver and McShane, from Fabroa and Marky and Chang, that was the greatest feeling. I tried to act as if what I'd done was no big deal, but I thought I was going to bust apart. I sat soaking up their praise for so long that when everybody else was long gone, I was still in my underwear. I finished dressing and left the locker room. Dad was waiting for me, a big grin on his face. He wanted to go out for pizza, but suddenly I felt tired, really tired. If it's okay, Dad, I said, I just want to go home. Come on, Nick. This is what we've been waiting for, isn't it? Let's go out and celebrate, talk, you and me. I'm tired. He stiffened. All right, you call the shots. It's a five-minute ride from the high school to our house. He looked over at me a couple times. Something wrong, he asked as we neared the house. Nothing's wrong. I knew Scott would be with Katya, but I thought Mom would be home. She wasn't, though, which was fine with me. I wanted to be by myself. I went to the kitchen and got some chocolate chip cookies and a glass of milk. I sat at the kitchen table, enjoying the quiet, the cookies, the cold milk. My mind wandered, jumping here and there. I remembered the shots, the passes, Franklin's early lead. Then I was in the locker room before the game, looking at the blackboard and the one word O'Leary had written, team. I'd heard it a million times, but I'd never really understood what it meant before. Seniors and sophomores first stringers and bench warmers. We were all one, all doing things together that we couldn't have done on our own. It was a great feeling, a feeling I didn't want to give up. That's when I knew I had to go see Trent one last time. It was crazy in a way. Three months earlier, I'd have been glad to, see, to have him leave. In fact, I would have bought him his ticket. But I know, but now I know him. Uh, his crooked smile, the way he took two stairs two at a time, his stutter step dribble, on drives to the hoop. I knew him. And when you know somebody, everything changes. I looked out the window. There was a light on upstairs. Excuse me, I did it again. A light on downstairs. I laced up my shoes, headed across the street, and tapped on his door. Immediately, it opened up. He peered out through the screen. You got a minute? I asked. He stepped out onto the porch. I guess. What's up? I thought for a moment, wanting to pick my words carefully. I just want to know how things stand. I said. He looked at me, his face blank. I'm still going, if that's what you're asking. But why? I said. You don't want to go. I know you don't. He looked away. It's not a question of what I want to do. I thought for a while, trying to get the words just right. So he looked out for you when you were little, okay? Nobody's arguing. He was a good brother. But that was a long time ago, Trent. You can't mess up your own life just because Zach gave you pretzels and a can of Coke 12 years ago. It doesn't make any sense. His eyes flashed. I already told you I'd stay for the Garfield game. I'm not talking about the Garfield game. I'm talking about everything. The hoops at night in the backyard, the school stuff, everything. The summer and next season and the season after that. He shook his head. You don't get it, do you? No, I don't, I said, my voice rising. I don't get it. He shook his head. I just don't fit with guys like you. I never have and never will. You don't fit with Zach, I said. Not anymore. He looked away. You don't know everything, Nick. If you did, you wouldn't say that. Something in his voice scared me. But I'd gone, I'd gone too far to back off.
So tell me, make me understand. For a long time, he didn't speak. Finally, he nodded. All right, I'll tell you. I'll tell you everything. He paused, and his voice dropped to a whisper. Zack wasn't alone when we killed those birds. I was right there with them. I killed half of them, maybe more. I hit them with a golf club, hit them over and over until they were dead. I don't know why I did it. I just did. But Zack never told the cops I was there. He took all the heat. You hear me? All of it. And the shooting, that was my fault. Because once Zack got out, I wrote him, telling him he had to do something to get back at Ushakov, something big. I watched him get the gun down from the closet, saw him flip through the yellow pages, looking for a place to buy bullets. I knew where he was going that night, what he was planning. I could have stopped him. All it would have taken was one word from me, but I let him go. I wanted to roll the dice, see what would happen. He stopped, he stopped then, stopped and stared at me. I knew I should have said something, but a numbness had come over me. I felt lightheaded, dizzy. He went on. Now you tell me, Nick, do you think your mom would have had me in her house if she knew? Do you think Luke's dad would have had me over for a barbecue? You've changed, Trent, I said, finally finding my voice. You're different from what you used to be. He snored in disgust. Nothing changes, Nick. Nothing and nobody. I swallowed. So the team, you and me being friends, all we've gone through, it doesn't count for anything? He shook his head slowly. It doesn't count for anything. I stared at him for a while. If that's how you feel, I said at last, then don't wait until after the Garfield game. Go as soon as you can, tonight even. With that, I turned and headed across the street toward my own house. Oh my goodness. What a crazy M. Night Shyamalan-like twist right there. I mean, this book did come out pretty much right after uh, The Sixth Sense came out. With that big twist, I don't want to spoil a 20-year-old movie, but perhaps perhaps our friend Carl Duker was inspired by M. Night Shyamalan and his twists. All right, here we go. Let's do, um, let's do some fun Starbucks, some fun facts from Starbucks, since this is the Washington State episode. So we might as well represent the company that everyone associates with Seattle. Uh, this is from Mental Floss. These are 14 freshly brewed facts about Starbucks. Um, apparently there's a ban on smells. Because aroma is so crucial to the Starbucks experience, Scholes laid down the law early on. Nothing can in- interfere with the smell of their freshly ground coffee. The stores banned smoking in the late 1980s, years before it became commonplace. Employees are asked not to wear perfume or cologne, and under no circumstances is pastrami to be stored anywhere on the on the premises. <laughs> um, wow, this is so funny. The mermaid used to show nipple. <laughs> what? Of course, that doesn't happen anymore. People are so um uptight that would they'd be like outraged. Think of the outrage that people would have if the Starbucks logo. <laughs> what if they changed the logo back? To make her show the nipple again. That'd be so funny. People would get so mad. Think of all like the anti... Oh my gosh, I love it. I think if they Starbucks should do it just as a publicity stunt. Like when um, when IHOP switched to IHOB for the burgers. Starbucks should do the... <laughs> that's their version of IHOB. Is the nipple. <laughs> the nipple on the mermaid. Alright. 
Uh, the siren of the famous Starbucks logo is intended to represent the seductive power of coffee, with her hair tastefully covering any hint of immodesty. But when Starbucks was still a regional chain in 1970s Seattle, their logo was more candid. The mermaid had full, fully exposed breasts. <laughs> Some customers commented on it, but it, <laughs> it didn't become scandalous until the company began making deliveries and had to put their signage on trucks. Reluctant to traffic in portable nudity, the logo was revised. Oh, so once they had to... And the truckers. The truckers didn't want to drive around with... Wait, they already have the trucker... The truck flaps? The tire flaps? With the silhouette of the sexy lady on it? How is that any different than the Starbucks mermaid with a nipple? <laughs> What's the difference? What's the difference there? Come on now. Um, you could have the same truck. Like on the side... Oh, I gotta stand up to stretch my legs. On the side of the truck... You got the, the Starbucks mermaid just going all girls gone wild, mermaids gone wild, and then you got your sexy lady mud flaps, and then you got the Calvin's pissing on the on the logo, of course. You got the whole thing. All right, there we go. There have been stores made out of old shipping containers in a monument <clears throat> monument to the company's eco-friendly attitude. Several stores built out of retired shipping containers have opened since 2011. Some use runoff drains to feed rainwater to nearby vegetation, while others use local materials such as discarded wooden fencing to complete the job. The recycled storefronts are typically drive-through only, but video cameras allow patrons to see a friendly barista's face. At 1,000 square feet, they're also smaller than a typical store, and Starbucks has every intention of using that tiny footprint to burrow its way into locations previously thought to be too small to lease. Um, an immunologist cracked the coffee code. This just reminds me of all the Starbucks talk. Um, I was working, I worked with this girl before who had worked for Starbucks. And she said that the people, the customers, were so mean to her, she said. She, she said this one lady, um, they messed up her order, and she threw her drink. She threw her, I think it was a drink, she said. Maybe it was a, no, I think it was a drink, not food. Just threw her drink at, at this girl. I was like, I can't believe that. Like, why is it that, like, you know the old cliche, like, don't bother me when I haven't had my coffee yet. Like, you wouldn't want to talk to him when he hasn't had his coffee. But... Why does that make it okay for people to be, like, super rude and, like, treat people, like, treat... <laughs> I'm standing up for the baristas. It's about time someone stood up for these baristas. <laughs> but, yeah, like, there's no excuse. People just come up with an excuse to act like an a-hole and be mean. Treat people bad. Treat people like dirt. Throw stuff at them. Like, you would never do that at, like, a grocery store. But, like... If you haven't had your coffee yet, like that makes it okay. Like coffee's the anti a hole. <laughs> it's con coffee's just anti a hole medicine, I guess. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the caffeine addiction or some that might that might be a thing. Alright. An immunologist cracked the coffee code. Infectious disease specialist Don Valencia was essentially just goofing off in nineteen ninety when he developed a coffee bean 
extract that smelled and tasted just like the real thing. After neighbors couldn't tell the difference between his sample and fresh coffee, he tried it out on a barista. Eventually, word got out to Starbucks executives who hired Valencia in 1993. Using his discovery to branch out into retail sales, Starbucks quickly became a top seller of bottled coffee and super premium, premium ice cream. For a time, they even outsold pint-sized King Haagen-Dazs. Wait, does Starbucks still sell ice cream? I did not know that. Managers were forced to play with Mr. Potato Head. Eager to ramp up efficiency in the face of stiffer competition in 2009, Starbucks dispatched executive Scott Hyden for some updated managerial training to demonstrate how employees can cut down on idle time behind the counter. Hyden instructed managers to assemble a Mr. Potato Head toy and then put him back in the box in under 45 seconds. At least one supervisor was able to pick up the scattered pieces and reassemble the spud in under 16 seconds. What? No. <laughs> I love how they just laid the hammer down on that on that Hyden dude, on Scott Hyden. They're like, you want me to do it in under 45 seconds? Doing under 16 seconds in your face. Boom. They probably just dropped the mic. Just dropped the Mr. Potato Head like a mic. Or spiked him. Threw him like a Gronkowski. Like a Gronk spike. <laughs> then take a shot of a fireball. That is insane. That reminds me of um, those Domino commercials. With a, that dude who... The world's fastest pizza box folder. That's what that reminds me of. They, <laughs> what's the most useless school, uh, skill in the world? Is it... Putting together Mr. I think putting together a Mr. Potato Head toy is even more useless than the pizza box folder guy. Cause at least that pizza box folder guy, like he's making those products like for Domino's at least, but like Mr. Potato Head, that's like all you can do is just put him put him together and then take him back apart. Just keep doing that. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Um the Starbucks CIA location is as secretive as you'd expect. Like most office buildings, the CIA in Langley, Virginia, runs on caffeine. But it doesn't run on, like typical Starbucks. Baristas undergo background checks and aren't allowed to leave their post without a CIA escort. That'd be so... You're so much cooler than the other Starbucks employees if you work at the CIA location. <laughs> you seriously, like, you're not even in the same class. The Jason Bourne of Starbucks. Um, I wonder if they... Man, I was going to say, I wonder if they, like, are all secret agents or something. They all know Taekwondo can... Oh, speaking of which, that just reminded me. Um, I was just talking about chiropractors. I think that was yesterday. I was talking about chiropractors and how, like, my mom will always go to them. And I've been to them. And, like, I don't understand. Like, they're scary. And then Joe Rogan was talking about them. I think it was the Billy Corbin episode. And he's, he was saying how chiropract, like chiropractors are basically just fake doctors. Like they, they just made up like the inventor, the inventor of, um, the, let me, let me look up chiro. I guess I'll look it up. But the inventor said that, that it was, it was meant to cure everything, like all ailments, but really all it does is just like relieve pressure in, in like your bones. 
it relieves stress. But they they say it's like witch power, basically. And that move where I was telling you guys, like the move where they grab your neck and snap it, and it was really scary. Joe Rogan said that people have died from that. People, they've they've killed people. Chiropractors have killed people from snapping their necks. And I was so I'm never. I will never go to a chiropractor again. Like, seriously. Like, it's just, it's like a momentary, like, momentary bliss. You know, momentary adjustment. But it only works for however long, an hour or so. But it doesn't cure anything. It's, it's who, what's it called? Who, who, who? <laughs> who, who science? What are they, what are they called? Woo-woo. Woo-woo science. That's what it's not hoo-hoo. <laughs> That's the owls. That's owls science. Uh, that was a trivia question today at, at the gym was what animal or what only asks questions but never answers and the answer was an owl because it just goes hoo 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 <laughs> so alright back to Starbucks here customer names cannot be called out or written on cups due to security concerns that's so funny why don't they just write fake names they should write like code names like eagle <laughs> Iron Eagle, we have a venti iced coffee for you. I have a small, <laughs> that's a small frappuccino. A small frappuccino for blazer bullets. <laughs> um, that'd be funny if the CIA, Starbucks, if they did like a small, medium, large, but they don't, they don't abide by like the tall venti, tall grande venti. No, we do small, medium, large. Ariana Medium. She's my favorite pop <laughs> She's my favorite pop star. Ariana Medium. There we go. That's a joke right there. That's a corny joke. It's a corny dad joke for you. Ariana Medium. Wait, cause right? Cause it goes tall, then grande, then venti. So grande is the medium one. There you go. You get it. Um despite the precautions, it's still a social atmosphere. According to the Washington Post, one key member of the team that assisted in locating Osama bin Laden was recruited there. Wow. Uh, the employee dress code is very specific. When Schultz opened his line of... Excuse me. His line of um, two geonarial espresso bars in 1985, he mandated employees wear the bow ties and crisp white shirts common in Italy. The current dress code has relaxed on the peewee attire, but still insists on a certain kind of conformity. Rings cannot have stones. Brightly covered, excuse me, brightly colored purple or pink hair is not welcome. Untucked shirts can't expose your midsection when bending over. Ear gouges must be less than 10 millimeters. Think you're going to sport a face tattoo or septum ring? Mister, the only thing you're brewing is trouble. <laughs> they, got, they got funny when they're writing this. They're having some fun. Um... Number eight, nonfat milk resulted in a corporate standoff. When Howard Behar came to Starbucks as an executive in 1989, he was dismayed to find that many customers had filled out their comment cards voicing their desire for nonfat milk. But Schultz and his team had decided they didn't like the taste and that nonfat was not authentically Italian. Bear argued that customers should get whatever they wanted. Customers always right. Uh, store managers protested, but when Schultz personally witnessed a customer walk out 
Over the lack of options, he relented. Today, half of the company's cappuccinos and lattes are frothed without fat. Froth. That's a that's a great name for like a a Netflix documentary right there. Frothed without fat. Oh my goodness. Or maybe like a. We used to have buff puff volleyball back in um high school, which is what we called basically. It was just like a male volleyball club. We just a bunch of dudes just got around, messed messed around, got together and played volleyball in the gym, and we had team names. I'm trying to think of what our team name was. Oh my gosh, it was. Oh, I think it was like, like bump set. It was like some sort of spin off, like bump set pass. But, um, what was that? Oh yes, frothed without fat would be a great name for a for a buff puff team name. That'd be great. Um, or maybe like a. It sounds like a the name of a ska album, like not not like the name of a ska band. But the name of like one of their albums, for sure. From like maybe like a a three eleven album from like the late nineties, Froth Without Fat, or a song. Very um very ska hipster. They have a ski through. Speaking of ska, this is a ski through. What's a ski through? Um, skiers in Squaw Valley, Ska Valley. <laughs> oh. What if there's a, I just got so happy just picturing Ska Valley, California, just everyone's wearing like top hats and like ironic, ironic, um, bolo ties. What else is going on in Ska Valley? They're definitely drinking, I feel like they drink like Tully's or like coffee bean. They don't drink Starbucks in Ska Valley. It's, it's too hip, they drink some hipster version of Starbucks. So the local barista, everyone has a... <laughs> Everyone has like a a pet dog. Every I feel like ska bands should all have pet dogs. Like um Lou, Lou Dog, the Sublime Dog. I just I like the idea of like a a band like a pet dog for a band. It's just I think every band should should be required to have some sort of like animal mascot. That's my my two cents there. Like Modest Mouse would obviously be a rat. <laughs> they could be rats. There we go. Their they could, their mascot could be Ratatouille. Um, let's see. Skiers in Squaw Valley, California, looking for a caffeine fix, don't have to take off their equipment. The Starbucks at the Gold Coast Resort is open to visitors via a ski through. That's so cool. They also take orders from the aerial lift. What could be better? They take orders while you're on the chairlift? Was there like an intercom or something? Was That's crazy. I'm just like admiring this view. It's just making me crave a nice warm mug of coffee. <laughs> These beautiful mountains. You know what would go perfect with them? A scone. Uh, number 10. You can get a butter beer frappuccino. The preferred thirst quencher for Harry Potter fans. Oh, see, it's like that's how little I know about Harry Potter. So I didn't even realize that that was, man, I didn't even realize that was a Harry Potter thing. Butterbeer isn't really available outside of the books or the Universal Studios attraction, but you can get a pretty good approximation by requesting a frappuccino with caramel syrup, caramel drizzle, drizzle, and toffee nut syrup. Oh, very good. So you, all you, um, 
Hufflepuffs out there? Is that is that what you call? What's a Hufflepuff? Is that? I think that's one of the houses, isn't it? It's like the one that everyone makes fun of. I think there's Gryffindor. There's Hufflepuff. <laughs> that's such a funny. It is. It is. It's a hilarious name for a house. No wonder they're made fun of. Their name's the Hufflepuffs. So, all right. Now we have to see what what's the four houses of wizardry. Four houses of wiz. So there's Gryffindor, of course. Man, I'm not that big of a. Not that big of a Harry Potter person, obviously. Let's see, Hogwarts, Hogwarts. I I just don't understand when like adults are obsessed with like Harry Potter. Like I really don't. I can. I'm not. No offense to. I'm sure there's some huge Harry Potter fans listening right now, but. I'm saying it's good. Of course, it's good. Probably good writing, good storytelling. But still, the, I don't get the obsession. Same, same for Star Wars. Star Wars is even worse. I mean, there's not as many like adults obsessed with Harry Potter. I don't think. I guess it's because it's more recent, though. It's gonna. There will be adults in like ten years from now. There's gonna be a ton of adults obsessed with Harry Potter. <laughs> but Starbucks, not Starbucks. Star Wars goes all the, all the way back to the seventies. That's why there's so many. So many uh, middle-aged people in Chewbacca costumes <laughs> at Halloween, at your Halloween party. Um, let's see, Hogwarts. I just want to see what the houses are. Where are the houses? So we have... Each one's named after the name of last name of its founder. Godric, Gryffindor, Salazar, Slytherin, Rowena, Ravenclaw, and Helga, Hufflepuff. Rowena, Ravenclaw. She's a witch noted for her cleverness and creativity. Described by Xenophilius Lovegood as beautiful. And I love how much range I have this podcast has. That's what's great about Stars Born. It's one moment you're talking about the seven ancient wonders of the world. Next moment you're talking about Helga Hufflepuff, who came from a broad valley. The sorting hat describes her as good Hufflepuff or sweet Hufflepuff. She favored loyalty, honesty, and dedication. In Goblet of Fire, she is said to have considered hard workers almost always most worthy of admission. I like Hufflepuff. Gold, Godric Gryffindor, one of the four founders of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Good, he was good friends with Salazar Slytherin, but they had conflicting ideas as Salazar believed no Muggle-borns should be accepted into Hogwarts. Godric Gryffindor was the most accomplished dueler of his time, an enlightened fighter against muggle discrimination and the first owner of the celebrated sorting hat. He is his known relics are a goblin made sword adorned with rubies, also known as the Sword of Gryffindor, and the Sorting Hat. What's the sorting hat? The sorting hat is an sapient artifact used at Hogwarts, which uses legitimacy leg- legitimacy, which is the ability to read minds. Oh, to determine which of the four houses each new student is to be assigned for their school for the years. What? Oh, that's right. I do remember that. I do remember that. It's like their version. It's the Harry Potter version of the Hogwarts um, version of the uh, college football signing day. You know, when when high school kids, they get that table and they set out like four college hats. 
There's like Miami and LSU and Clemson, Notre Dame, and then just like a ton of people there, a ton of cameras, press conference, and they pick which one they're going to go to right on the spot. That's how they select which team they're going to go to, which, not team, but college. So that's the sorting hat. <laughs> that's the uh, apps. Com- that's the comparison there. Now let's read about Salazar Slytherin. He's power hungry, known for shrewd Slytherin from Fen. What's Fen? Oh, Fen is um. Fen is a main type of wetland. It's like a grassy marsh or swamp or bog. Huh. It's like there's so many different words for these like swamps and huh bog. I've always I've always been scared of like a bog like swamp monster. Like that. Oh, speaking of my obsessions, I love a good moat. I love moats. I don't know what it is, but they seem that's where you'd find like a bog monster too. Um I would love to go like I really want to go to Europe. One of the I mean, obviously, I want to go to Europe, but one of the reasons is just the history, like the the scope of history, and I'd love to just walk through a castle, just see what their moat is like, see like an old drawbridge, see that um the guillotine. I want to see a guillotine, <laughs> like cut off like a crash test dummy dummy head. I mean, obviously not a putting. <laughs> I don't want to see it put to use for real, but crash test on me head, sure, see what it looks like, um, shrewd Slytherin, alright, so yeah, there's your, there's your Harry Potter chat, I think that's enough, um, let's, let's go back to Tommy Age, actually, let's go back to Starbucks, then we'll go back to Tommy, so we were here, we were talking Harry Potter, the round tables may help you feel less lonely, Feeling self-conscious about sitting in Starbucks by yourself? Don't be. The round tables are there to help. The company believes the circular dining areas can make a space feel less empty when compared to the stern edges of a rectangular or square table. They don't want you to feel alone. So, so alone. (laughs) This is funny. Mental floss is funny. I do remember my mom. I think she still subscribes to the magazine. I think she still gets that. It said delivery. Oh, I remember um, having to collect magazine subscriptions in like elementary school. That's probably such a hassle for parents. I bet parents were probably subscribing to all sorts of magazines they didn't want just because their kids were asking them. It's like the same. It's like Girl Scout cookies that you read. It's thin mints are the best. Frozen thin mints, number one for me. Um... That is weird, though. Like, why would you feel self-conscious about going to Starbucks by yourself? Like, don't... Most of the people that go to Starbucks are by themselves. It's not really... It's not a big communal activity. Like, what's wrong? There's nothing wrong with going to coffee. Going to grab coffee by yourself. Like, that's such a weird thing to... I don't know. I feel like that person... person who's writing this is... They're being kind of uptight. I don't know. Judging themselves too much. No no shame in going to Starbucks by yourself. Like, seriously, you don't have to find a friend every time you get a cup of coffee. And, like, nowadays, like, everyone uses it as a as a second office. 
They just bring their laptop, just set up shop there for hours. Number 12, the Disney Starbucks has magic chalkboards. When Starbucks opened at Downtown Disney in Orlando, Florida, some of the company's trademark features were tweaked to fit their magic magical affiliation. The chalkboard was reimagined as a 70-inch touchscreen that can render illustrations in real time. Customers can also draw on the screen using their fingers, take selfies, and see what visitors in Disney's Anaheim Starbucks are up to. What? That's so cool. That's the way of the future. I like the... I love it when, like, the future meets the past, though. I think that's what it's all about. It's about combining like this new technology that we have like with the old stuff and it just gives it new meaning it's so, i don't know it's some why do i like it so much it's hard to it's hard to put put a finger on it right now but like there's something about a virtual reality chalkboard that i just really love like just like the same the same idea with like a starbucks like in a storage container like i like that i like something about like like reusing like these old things the underwater museum oh my gosh i mean that's a completely different story but <laughs> i'm just still like still thinking about how cool that is um number 13 some stores have the technology for the greatest cup of coffee possible starbucks cares a great deal they care a great deal about serving an excellent cup of coffee employees never let brew pots sit for more than 30 minutes and stores use no artificially flavored grounds. The next giant leap in bean prep might be the Clover, a proprietary machine engineered by Stanford that costs $13,000 to install and uses a vacuum and elevator system to shoot coffee grounds upward with precision water temperatures. So it's like the thing at the bank that you put, like you put that, the tube in the bank and then it shoots, it sucks it through and shoots it into the bank, it's the same idea. Uh, the result is said to be a peerless experience. If you're lucky enough to be near a store that has one, expect to pay up to $5 a cup. Well, they usually cost like, they already cost $5 a cup. <laughs> and number 14, the final fun fact of Starbucks here. Even if you're not in a Starbucks, you might be in a Starbucks. <laughs> That's, that just reminds me of like, you might be a redneck. Even if you're not in a Starbucks, you might be in a Starbucks. <laughs> um, that's like the hipster Northwest version of it. Starbucks is both a progressive and staunchly familiar brand. They want to innovate without alienating their loyal customer base. One solution has been to design and open a series of stealth stores that serve Starbucks coffee while going by another name like 15th Avenue East Coffee and Tea in Seattle. I've actually seen that place. It's downtown Seattle. Um, I think, I think they have like the same color scheme as Starbucks, but they just have no, like they have no picture of the mermaid, the mermaid with her with her exposed breasts. <laughs> um, freed from the trappings of a conventional location, these undercover stores can offer live music and serve beer or wine. The company has eyes on opening roughly 100 similar locations in the future. Yeah, the one in Woodenville, right across the street from the AMC movie theater. You thought I'd forget the AMC triple feature? No way, baby. I'm still doing it. 
AMC Triple Feature. Let's do it right now. Ah, it was June 2009. But yes, I was saying the the Starbucks across the street from the AMC movie theater in Woodinville, they serve um, beer and wine, or at least wine. Um, but yes, the AMC Triple Feature, baby. We did it. I can't believe if I forget, but we made it. We made it this far, and then we just lay it down, lay the hammer down on you. So it was June 2009. I was with my best bud growing up, Stephen Ungrecht. School had just gone out for the summer, and we decided to celebrate the only way we knew how, by going to the old movie theater over in Woodinville. And we picked up a ticket for year one, the movie starring Jack Black, Jack Black, and Michael Sarah, and we talked about it in the Paul Rudd episode, episode four. It's the caveman, the caveman walking story, the caveman road trip. Um, honestly, don't remember hardly. I remember hardly anything from this movie. Other than it was, it's a little cringeworthy. It's just like I, I personally, I don't like seeing like my favorite actors in terrible movies. Like, I want to see them succeed and be in, like, hilarious movies and awesome, like, successful movies, like, great things. Like, I don't like to see... I don't want to see Jack Black and Michael Sarah just... Because I know it's not their fault. Like, they're doing their best. They didn't write the movie. They're not directing it. They didn't edit it. They didn't cast it. But... Because, like, I don't know. I think... When there's like someone like Jack Black, like he's like, I look at him as being, what's the word for him? Pretty much dynamite, <laughs> not not dynamite, but indestructible. Like he's, like you know what you're gonna get with Jack Black. Like he delivers. Like I, I don't think he's gonna come up short. It's he's one of, like him. I mean, this all of a sudden turned into Jack Black love fest in the middle of the Tom Hanks episode. But I'm just using him as an example. As like he, it's not his fault that he's in a terrible movie. Like I think people get mixed up sometimes, but I don't know. Like I, I give. I'm saying like for my favorite actors, um, I, I stand behind them. I, I, I blame, I blame the writers and directors and editors, and all the other people, who had a say in, in changing the movie. <laughs> Cause like seriously, like if it's, I don't know, if it's well directed and maybe if they let them. Like ad lib a little more, let them play around a little more. Um, maybe it would have been funnier if maybe Jack Black should have just directed the movie. Now I have to see. Maybe I've talked about this before, but I do want to see who directed Year One. Let's. Whoops, not the year. We don't want the year Starbucks was founded. We want Year One, the director of Year One. So let's see. Um. Harold Ramis was in it too. See, it's like when a great actor like Harold... Oh my god. No way. Oh my god, that's so funny. That's so funny. I was just going to say, when a great actor like Harold Ramis is in a terrible movie like this, it's too bad. But guess who directed and wrote this movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Harold Ramis. Yeah, yeah. Not Bill Murray. Harold Ramis. This was the last film before his death in 2014 that's just sad maybe it's not as bad as I thought 
Mr. Um, Judd Apatow was one of the producers. So he's like, this is a Judd Apatow movie directed by Harold Ramis. What other movie? Like, from Ghostbusters, obviously, and Stripes. But what else did he direct? I don't know if he... He was also in... Um, wow. I'm Harold, Ramis, Harold Ramis. Excuse me. Was also in uh, Superbad. Or not Superbad. Uh, Knocked Up. He's briefly appeared in Knocked Up. But I can't believe that he directed Caddyshack. I did not know that... What? Harold Ramis directed Caddyshack and Vacation. That's insane. Those are like two huge movies. And Groundhog Day. We were just talking about Groundhog Day. Wow. And uh, Analyze This, Analyze That, Multiplicity, Stuart Saves His Family, Bedazzled, The Ice Harvest. So he directed some good movies. I mean, wow. That's just too bad. That... Let's see what year one's at. So it did have all the pieces. How come it's still... Maybe I have to rewatch it. I think it might be one of those things where... Because there's some funny people in it. Let's see. This might be one of those things that I want to rewatch. Just based on... Oh my gosh. Guess what the Rotten Tomatoes is. Not good. Not good. Very rotten. A very rotten cut up tomato. Not, not a... Not a sliced tomato. This is a cut-up tomato right here. Um, that's a four-hour callback right there. <laughs> uh, let's see. It's a 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. This is terrible. 15? I mean, I don't take... I don't just take their word for it, though. I like to see a movie for myself, but... I mean, when it gets down to the 15%, when you get down to teens on Rotten Tomatoes, it's hard to... It's hard to go into that movie, <laughs> going to going to blind. All right, but anyway, we're still talking AMC Triple Feature. I almost got off track there. So we went to we went to year one, bought our ticket for it. It was rated uh, PG thirteen, and we were only sixteen at the time, so we were not able to sneak in, or we had to sneak in. Excuse me, to the next movie, which was The Hangover, rated R. R. Talked about it. Brody Stevens, you got it. Episode three. Yeah. Positive energy. Positivity. Um Yeah. The Hangover. It was a great movie. Awesome. One of the funniest of all time. Uh, Brody was one of the police officers. I all all good memories about the hangover. Just a really funny movie. Kind of like laid the blueprint down for modern modern day comedies, I would say. Definitely, definitely started like a new, new type of like adult party shenanigan comedies. Kind of like in the same vein as like Neighbors, like Neighbors really, um, which was kind of like the old school one. Neighbors is the Seth Rogen and Zac Efron. Um, but that one really reminds me of The Hangover for some reason. I guess, <laughs> I guess Neighbors is like The Hangover meets old school. But, yeah, you can't go wrong with The Hangover. It's great, awesome movie. Tremendous movie. Um, yeah, after that, we backflipped and somersaulted, trampolined, double-balanced on over, across the aisle, over to Land of the Lost. 
We talked about it. Episode one, the very first episode of A Star is Born, Will Ferrell. Um, this one was even worse than year one, believe it or not. A absolutely terrible movie in my recollection. But yeah, this one, 26% in Rotten Tomatoes. So actually scored higher than year one. But I don't know. If Will Ferrell can't save it, then no one can, right? It's just terrible. Who is it directed directed by let's see Brad Brad Silberling I've never heard of this dude let's see what else Brad Silberling he's in Casper City of Angels Moonlight Mile Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events those were oh my gosh those were some of my favorite books of all time growing up uh, that was my I would probably say that was my favorite book series like, I loved Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events. We'll have to... I'm going to write that down for a future episode. We'll um, get into series... What Didn't they make the unfortunate... They made the uh, Netflix show with... um What's it? NPH. Going all spooky. Who's in this movie, though, in 2004? I don't think I saw it. Oh, it was Jim Carrey. Okay. Of course, Jim Carrey was... Of course, he played Lemony Snicket. God, that's such a great name. Just the name, Lemony Snicket. There's a legend to that name, a lore. Um, ten minutes or or ten items or less. This is another another uh, Brad Silberling directed movie. This one's starring Morgan Freeman. I thought this was the Dane Cook movie. What was the Dane Cook grocery store movie? Let's, now we gotta find that one. Um, what was it? Dane Cook in the grocery store? Hmm. How come I... Now I'm just thinking of Superstore. That one... Gross. Yes, of course. Um, Employee of the Month. Yeah, there we go. Of course. Dax Shepard. Episode 10. The Chris and Bell and Dax Shepard episode. Check that. Yes, Jessica Simpson was in it. That's when... 2006, that's like the peak of Jessica Simpson. She was like on top right there. Is that when um, they came out with the, the Dukes of Hazard remake, I think? Right around that time? Let's see. Yeah, her and Nick Lackey. That's when her and Nick Lackey were together from 2002. They, they got married in October 26, 2002. And then November 2005, they were separated. So she was on top. When was Dukes of Hazard? Yep, 2005, exactly. Right in that, right in that time period. 05, 06. I remember Jessica Simpson. When did she date Tony Romo? Let's, let's see. That was... um, how, Come on. Tony Romo? That was probably 2010, I want to say. Let's see. Tony Romo. Um, 2009. Oh, wow. Okay. That's when they broke up. July 2009. Okay. This has turned into like TMZ podcast. <laughs> Very interesting. Wait, Tony Romo and Britney Spears? What? Um, okay. Or they were just hanging out. They are just hanging out. Uh, in 2007. What about Tony Romo and Carrie Underwood? 
Um, they were date. They dated. I did not know that. Wow, they dated a long time ago, back in. Back in like, oh eight, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Man, Tony Rome was just Mr. Player, and now, and now he's like, the next best uh, person in the booth. Everyone loves him in the booth. And then let's see, Brad Silberling. The final movie he directed, the uh, Land of Lost director, is An Ordinary Man, which stars, I'm all over the place right now, sorry, <laughs> stars Ben Kingsley, Ben Kingsley, the Gandhi guy, yep, guy who played Gandhi. All right, so that was Brad Silberling, a little Brad Silberling deep dive there, Land of Lost director, loosely based on the 1974 Sid and Marty Croft TV show, the same name. This movie came out June 5th, 2009. I think it was like that weekend too. It may have been. Because when did year one come out? I think year one... Because I'm... From memory. I believe The Hangover was also June 5th. Oh, okay. Year one was June 19th. Yes, so it was the first weekend of year one then. Because I remember that movie was in the... um, one of the big movie theaters because I worked at AMC Woodenville movie theater so I know what the theaters are like I know that theater 6 and 7 are the two big ones the two biggest ones and year 1 was in theater 6 which was right next to the old arcade in the concession stand before they remodeled they remodeled the whole movie theater made a bathroom downstairs you used to have to go upstairs for the bathroom or take the elevator. Um, yes, that is your AMC triple feature, baby. We did it. We did it. We did it. We did it. Now let's, um, let's rumble through these, these Tom Hanks movies. Let's rumble, rootle, rootle on through them. So there's documentary in short, uh, 2005, Magnificent Desolation, Walking on the Moon 3D. He's a narrator. See, like I said, Tom Hanks loves space. Uh, 2006, he is the voice of Woody Carr in Cars. Did not remember him being in that one. Um, yeah, wow, wow. You're in this one, wow. <laughs> 2006, The Da Vinci Code. He plays Robert Langdon. This was the one based on... That Dan Brown book, that book that everyone loves, 149 minutes mystery thriller, PG thirteen. Seriously, I think, I think pretty much the whole reason people love that book is because it has the word Da Vinci in the title. That's like almost cheating. Putting, just that's like name recognition. You just see the words Da Vinci, just name recognition alone. Oh, I'll buy this book. This looks interesting. I like painting. <laughs> A murder. A murder inside the Louvre and clues into Da Vinci paintings lead to the discovery of a religious mystery protected by a secret society for 2,000 years which could shake the foundations of Christianity. That does sound like a pretty intense movie. Tom Hanks is always in these, like... Same with Tom Cruise. The movies that are, like, bigger than world, like, bigger than everything. Like, these grandiose movies that everything, that the world's gonna end if... If this thing doesn't happen, this is the uncovering of Christianity. 
this religion's gonna change forever because Tom Hanks <laughs> like he's such a just these characters are so grandiose like same with the same with Tom Cruise it's the it's the Tom I don't know what it is about the Toms wow he was in the Simpsons movie voice of himself in 2007 I thought the Simpsons movie was really weird like for like for a person like as big of a fan of the sh- of the show as I was it's just it's kind of different than the show just I mean I think that's good though of course it's good you don't want to make a movie that's just the same I don't know I've heard pe- like critics say that it was just the same as the show I thought it was a little different I thought it was weird I remember the new animation style, like the weird like 3D animation, just so strange to look at and distracting from the story. I'd rather I'd rather have them just keep it the same. <laughs> uh after Homer accidentally pollutes the town's water supply, Springfield is encased in a gigantic dome by the EPA and the family are declared fugitives. It's a fun one. It's a good movie. I mean, I just love The Simpsons, though, so. 2007, Charlie Wilson's War. He plays Charlie Wilson. This is 102 minutes, read R, bio, comedy, drama, based on Texas Congressman Charlie Wilson's covert dealings in Afghanistan, where his efforts to assist rebels in their war with the Soviets have some unforeseen and long-reaching effects. Very interesting. He loves a good political movie. Tom Hanks loves a loves to wear suit. Two thousand eight, he's the great Buck Howard. Um, he's Mister Gable in the Great Buck Howard. What was this one? It was ninety minute PG comedy drama. A young man, much to the chagrin of his father, becomes a new assistant to an illusionist in decline. Ah, and that's John Malkovich. This is right after The Prestige came out. I wonder if they saw the prestige and they're like, we gotta make a movie about a magician. We gotta. It's right when magician movies were hot. 2009. There's like Ed Norton was in The Illusionist, I think. 2009. Angels and Demons. He plays Robert Langdon. I do not remember this one at all. It's 138 minutes. Mystery thriller, PG 13. Harvard symbi- symbologist Robert Langdon works with a nuclear physicist. To solve a murder and prevent a terrorist attack against the Vatican during one of the significant events with the church. Jeez. See, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying with the grandiose movies. All his movies are so grandiose. <laughs> He's preventing a terrorist attack against the Vatican. It's like, what? It's like, why can't Tom Cruise just go to a baseball game and just eat a hot dog and watch a sunset? Go fishing. He needs to hang out with Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> uh, hang out in a bongo circle with Matthew McConaughey. Hit a few bongos. He is in the TV show 2009, Late Show with David Lehrman. Emergency button guest. He plays the provider of sound effects, Dr. Robert Langdon slash Cookie Hunter. Three episodes. He is the narrator voice of a 2009 short called Beyond All Boundaries. He is, what is this? It's a visual 4D experience of the battles of World War II, featuring stories, archival footage, and advanced special effects. Very cool. 4D experience. So they're like spraying you with stuff, 
they're spraying you with blood, <laughs> just splatters. That's crazy. Um, TV Maceries, 2010, The Pacific. He's the narrator for six episodes. I think this was, was this like the unofficial sequel of Band of Brothers? Like, it's not the, yeah, I think it, may, maybe it is. The Pacific theater of World War II as seen through the eyes of several young Marines. So it's like a totally different story, but I don't know if it's like the same producers or something as Band of Brothers. Uh, 2010, Toy Story 3. Oh my gosh. That was 2010 when that came out. I went to that one with my mom. I remember, oh man, a good a good cry with my mom at Toy Story 3. <laughs> uh, he's a voice of Woody. Seriously though, because... I think, what is it, me? Or no, it's my older brother. My older brother's like the same age as uh, the character. What's it? I can't remember the kid's character. And Andy. Yep, Andy. My brother's the same age as him, so they pretty much grew, grew up together, you know? And it gets real sad because the toys are mistakenly delivered to a daycare center instead of the attic right before Andy leaves for college. And it's up to Woody to convince the other toys that they weren't abandoned and to return home. Yeah, this is amazing. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Alright. Can't go wrong with Toy Story. Pixar movies in general. Pretty much all Pixar movies are great. Uh, short from 2011, Toy Story Toons, Hawaii Vacation. Voice of Woody. He plays himself. In 30 Rock for one episode in 2011, he plays Larry Crown in Larry Crown 2011. It's a rom-com drama, 98 minutes, PG-13. After losing his job, a middle-aged man reinvents himself by going back to college. College. That does that sounds fun. It's like old school. Or that new Melissa McCarthy movie that didn't do well. Um, TV show 2011, The Daily Show. He plays James Lavelle. Uh, short from 2011, Toy Story Tunes. He plays Small Fry. Voice of, or no, he plays a, sorry, the voice of Woody. It's a Toy Story Tunes Small Fry. Um, oh, I heard of this one. He plays Thomas Shell in 2011. Extremely loud, incredibly close. What was this? A nine-year-old amateur inventor, Francophile and pacifist, uh, searches New York City for the lock that matches a mysterious key left behind by his father, who died in the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. Wow. What an interesting Sandra Bullock scene, too. Sandy B. So we talked about that one in her episode. What an interesting plot of a movie. It's it's a little grandiose, like I was saying, <laughs> like I was saying, like I like how he's like it's not enough that he's this nine year old kid's an amateur inventor. He's also a francophile and a pacifist, and he's searching around New York City. Just some nine year old kid running around New York City, looking for a mysterious key. What a what a movie. Um, kind of reminds me of. It's like Night at the Museum if it wasn't in a museum. I don't know why, but that's like the first thing that came to mind there. Night at the Museum. But I guess, what am I saying? 
the point of night at the museum is all the animals and all the statues like escape. So I guess I'm tripping up. <laughs> I'm tripping myself up. I feel like I just I just tangle my feet on like a on some rope. <laughs> just got caught in my own bear trap there. Um TV series short 2012 Electric City. He plays Cleveland Carr for 21 episodes. What? What a name. Cleveland Carr. It's the Cleveland show. A view of the future civilization presented through the lens of provocative themes such as energy consumption, freedom of information, crime and punishment. Paul Shears in it too. Paul Shears hilarious. Let's see. Cloud Atlas. Oh my gosh. This was one of those grandiose movies, I think. Cloud Atlas, 2012. One of those movies where he plays a bunch of characters, as Tom Hanks likes to do. He's Dr. Henry Goose, hotel manager, Isaac Sachs, Dermot Hoggins, Cavendish lookalike actor, and Zachary. And Zachary is spelled Z-A-C-H-R-Y. So first time I've ever seen that one. But this is the... What is this? Oh my goodness. 172 minutes. Action, drama, mystery, raid R. An exploration of how the actions of individual lives impact one another in the past, present, and future. As one soul is shaped from a killer into a hero, an act of kindness ripples across centuries to inspire a revolution. I'd say that's pretty, pretty grandiose. <laughs> Halle Berry's in it. Yeah, I heard that one was crazy. I heard this just made no sense. I'd like to see it, judge for myself. He's in a short from 2012, Toy Story Tunes. He plays the voice of Woody on Toy Story Tunes, Party Source Rex. He plays Captain Richard Phillips in Captain Phillips. I'm the captain now. I'm the captain now. 2013. It's 134 minutes, PG-13, biography, drama, thriller, the true story of Captain Richard Phillips and the 2009 hijacking by Somali pirates of the U.S.-flagged MV Maersk, Alabama, the first American cargo ship to be hijacked in 200 years. Yeah, this was... I didn't see that one either, but that one was definitely in the pop culture ether for a long time there. The... People love saying, I'm the captain now. It's like a, the earlier version of, tell the truth. Tell the truth. Like Will Smith and Concussion. Um, Let's see. TV short 2013. Toy Story of Terror. He's the voice of Woody. Uh, 2013. Saving Mr. Banks. Okay. This is the one. I got Saving Mr. Banks mixed up with the great Buck Howard. <laughs> um, he plays Walt Disney. This is the one about Walt Disney. Author P.L. Travers reflects on her childhood after reluctantly meeting with Walt Disney, who seeks to adapt her Mary Poppins book for the big screen. Wow. Emma Thompson's in it, too. Colin Farrell. That sounds really interesting. Um, Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins, Emily Blunt, the new Mary Poppins, I think she's got an episode, I think we're doing her soon, real soon, Emily Blunt, actually, yeah, coming up, um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see, um, let's see, 
<laughs> I like how I don't tell you I don't tell you guys what the future episodes are. You'll see. We'll see what they are. Maybe you've already done it. Maybe you're listening to this. I've already done it. And you just go listen to Emily Blunt right now if you want. We'll see. But right now we're talking Tommy Hanks still. We're still we're wrapping up. We're wrapping up Tommy H. So let's do it. Uh, TV short, 2014, Toy Story, That Time Forgot. He's the voice of Woody. Lots of Toy Story spinoffs. Uh, video short from 2015, Carly Rae Jepsen, I Really Like You. He plays Tom. Is Carly Rae Jepsen? Oh, she's, um, Call Me Maybe. Wait, she's that one, right? How How's that one go? Um, Call, call Me Maybe. Yeah, that is her. This is this was like the biggest song in the world. You hey, I just yeah that that was it. Sorry to get this stuck in your head, but hey, I just met you. This is crazy, but here's my number. So call me maybe. It's hard to look right at you, baby. But here's my number. So call me maybe. Before you came into my life, I missed you so bad. I missed you so bad, I missed you so, so bad Before you came into my life, I missed you so bad And you should know that So come in maybe Do, 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 do Do, 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 do <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love it That song was the biggest thing in the world The biggest song in the world at one point Um, 2015 Bridge of Spies, he plays James B. Donovan. I remember seeing this in theaters. I saw this movie in theaters. So boring. <laughs> so much negotiating. This is just a movie of pure negotiation, tactics, and skills. A, a story of will and, two, and people sitting across tables with good posture, having calm, composed conversations. <laughs> All right, uh, 142 minutes, PG-13, drama, history, thriller. During the Cold War, an American lawyer is recruited to def defend an arrested Soviet spy in court and then help the CIA facilitate an exchange of the spy for the Soviet-captured American U-2 spy plane, uh, spy plane pilot Francis Gary Powers. So it's one of those classic uh, trade, a tit-for-tat, person-for-a-person, um, you too, though. It's a beautiful day. I wonder if that's where you two got their name. Too many get away. Beautiful day. Hey, hey, hey. Touch me. Take me to that other place. Reach me. I know I'm not a hopeless case What you don't have, you don't need it now What you don't have, you don't need somehow What you don't have, you don't need it now Don't need it now It's a beautiful day Man, we in it, we deep in this, baby We just sing we just sang it now. We sang it. Uh, oh, wait. That's what I want to mention. I totally forgot. I wanted to mention this actually at the top of the episode. That's hilarious. Um, I was listening to 
Stand By Your Band, and Chris Duffy was defending Hootie and the Blowfish. So I heard this hilarious... Yeah, that's why I, that's why I sang. Going all the way back to the beginning, uh, Darius Rucker, uh, Wagon Wheel, Hootie. I sang Hootie's song there. But I forgot to tell you that I learned this really fun... Oop, almost dropped my yellow legal pad there. I learned this super fun fact that apparently... Hootie, Hootie the Blowfish was formed um, on the campus of University of North, uh, South Carolina when the guitarist Mark Bryan overheard Darius Rucker singing in the shower of the dorm room, of the dorms, of, the, of his dorm floor. And, um, and, he, and he asked him if he wanted to be in a band. Isn't that, that's so funny. That's insane. So a few lessons from that. I, I gleaned... Anything is possible. Uh, you never know who's listening. And speak up and let yourself be heard. Those are a few lessons I, I gathered from Darius Rucker being overheard singing in the shower of the dorms. That's so funny. And then they start a band. That's crazy how things start. Like how you don't know that... Like he didn't know. Like Mark Bryan had no idea that he was, he was starting a a famous rock band called Hootie and the Blowfish, or country, country rock. But he was just, he was probably just acting off his gut, just gut instinct, just, I like this guy's voice, I'm gonna, I'm gonna compliment him, see, see if he wants to work with me, see if he wants to do something. That's so cool though. That's like, the, I saw this like Oprah quote, I think it was Oprah, she said, you'll never know, like you'll never know what you can get if you don't ask for it. It was like something along those lines. I love I love quotes like that. Like you gotta you gotta speak up, like ask. Like people can't read your minds yet. <laughs> we don't have that technology. Elon Musk hasn't developed that technology yet, so seriously, like speak up, speak your mind, stand up for yourself, ask, ask questions, all that jazz. And also Hootie and the Blowfish is now on tour with Bare Naked Ladies. So that's pretty awesome. Of that, Bare Naked Ladies, one of my favorite bands. Um, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. Uh, if I had a million dollars, we wouldn't have to walk to the store. If I had a million dollars, we'd take a limousine because it costs more. If I had a million dollars, we wouldn't have to eat craft dinner, but we would eat craft dinner, right? We just eat more and buy real expensive ketchups. Ooh, Dijon ketchup. <laughs> okay. Now we we're just having fun now. Um excuse me. Still this Panda Express. That's what is Panda Express. I ate it. Oh my gosh, I ate that like eight hours ago and still just burping it up. It's just not going anywhere. <laughs> Maybe I ate too much of it or too fast or I definitely drank enough water. I don't think that's the problem. All right, 2015 movie. We're back on Tom Hanks now, guys. Back on Tommy Hanks. He plays the name of his character here, Matthew McCauley in the movie Ithaca, 2015. 96 minutes, drama, war, PG. With his... All right, with his older brother off to war, 14-year-old telegram messenger Homer McCauley 
comes of age in the summer of 1942. 1942, very general there. Um, 2016, a hologram for the king. He plays Alan. What was this one? A failed American sales rep looks to recoup his losses by traveling to Saudi Arabia and selling his company's product to a wealthy monarch. Oh, this was kind of like the Tina Fey. What was that Tina Fey movie where she went? You guys know what I'm talking about. She was like a news reporter in the Middle East. Um, but yes, this one, I do remember when it came out. And I had no idea what it was about. I just thought the title was really weird. But I guess that's what it is. Uh, TV show 2016, Maya and Marty. He plays Gene for one episode. Oh, this was Maya Rudolph. Oh my gosh. We talked about it. Episode 14 of Stars Born, Maya Rudolph. 2016, he plays Chesley Sully Sullenberger. Sullenberger. Sullenberger in uh, Sully. The story of a uh, Sullenberger, an American pilot who became a hero after landing his damaged plane on the Hudson River in order to save the flight's passengers and crew. 96 minutes, PG-13, biodrama. Aaron Eckhart is in it too. I hope he's not a two-faced liar in that. <laughs> um, 2016 Inferno plays Robert Langdon. Oh, is this Robert Langdon? That was his same character name from... What other movie was he? He was Robert Langdon in uh, Angels and Demons. That was it. Okay. I, I knew I wasn't going crazy there. So what's Inferno? Inferno, I guess it's a sequel. It's 120 minutes. PG-13, action, adventure, crime. When Robert Langdon wakes up in an Italian hospital with amnesia, he teams up with Dr. Sienna Brooks, and together they must race across Europe against the clock to foil a deadly global plot. So grandiose. <laughs> He's all, Tom, Tom Hanks is always trying to stop the world from ending or like he's always traveling around the world trying to trying to detonate some situation just can he ever just relax on a hammock just go to the beach come on can't a guy get a break <laughs> 2017 oh this was a weird movie i didn't see this one but it looked really weird in the commercials he is bailey in the movie the circle Speaking of Harry Potter, starring Hermione Emma Watson, 110 minutes, PG-13, drama, sci-fi, thriller. A woman lands a dream job at a powerful tech company called The Circle, only to uncover an agenda that will affect the lives of all of humanity. Wow, speaking of, see, affects the lives of all humanity. <laughs> oh my gosh, so funny. Um, I think they're making fun of like, that may have been the commentary on Facebook or something, or Google. Google. Like a more serious version of that Owen Wilson, Vince Vaughn movie, where they're interns at Google. Uh, TV short from 2017. Tom Hanks plays a guy with an awesome name. David S. Pumpkins. In the David S. Pumpkins Halloween special. What is that? It's a cartoon. Excuse me. 
um, set in a small suburban town on All Hallows' Eve and centers on pumpkins and his dancing skeleton sidekicks who show a young boy and his sister the true meaning of Halloween. So silly. That sounds... As some SNL people, uh, Peter Dinklage, um, SNL people, Cecily Strong and Bobby Moynihan and v- Melissa Villasenor. Yep. Huh? That sounds funny. I like it. Uh, 2017, The Post, a newspaper movie. Ben Bradley, 116 Minutes, PG-13, Biodrama History. A cover-up that spanned four U.S. presidents pushed the country's first female newspaper publisher and hard-driving editor to join an unprecedented battle between the press and government. And Meryl Streep in it, too. Um, seems pretty boring. Like, I don't know. These kinds of movies where people are just, like, in offices, like, arguing with each other. I sound like a child, but still, it's just boring, like, too much talking, too much just sitting around, like, I like, me personally, I like movies with, like, lots of action, like, I like a a comedy, I mean, like I said, my favorite movie genres, comedy, horror, heist, reunion, and boardwalk, <laughs> we're still, I think we decided that boardwalk qualifies as one of those, but those are all, have, like, action in them, they're all Things where people are doing stuff, like they're reunion, they're coming together, a heist, they're pulling off a crime, horror, they're running away from a scary thing, and then comedy, they're making, making mirth, and then the boardwalk, they're just walking on the boardwalk. But I'm not, I don't see talking, like I don't like a movie where they're just sitting around a newspaper, just I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm trying to tear him down. I'm trying to tear down Tom Hanks. I guess. <laughs> I feel like someone needs to tear him down. Knock him down a peg, right? <laughs> uh, all right. He plays William Dodd. He's rumored to play William Dodd in the Garden, in the Garden of Beasts, which is a drama. It's in pre-production. A mild-mannered Chicago professor becomes America's first ambassador to Hitler's Germany just before the Nazis begin to assert an iron grip across Europe. Yeah, he's in some very impactful films. Um, he's been a man called Ove. He plays Ove. It's just a comedy drama. A cranky, retired man strikes up an unlikely friendship with his boisterous new neighbors. And it's, an, it's a remake of the 2015 Swedish film. Swedish. Uh-huh. That's just... When, when I hear Swedish, it just reminds me of Welcome to Sweden, that short-lived NBC sitcom that starred Amy Poehler's brother. <laughs> you think I'm making that up? You think I'm making that up? Look it up. That's real. That's a real thing. I watched it. 2019, Greyhound. Um, it's a drama war. He's a Navy officer, uh, commands the Greyhound during World War II. So the Greyhound must be, I don't know what it is, 2019, Toy Story 4 coming out. I think we've, we looked at when this came out. When's this coming? I think it's June, I believe it's, yeah, June 21st, okay. Very good. Jordan Peele's going to be a voice in it. Keanu Reeves, Christina Hendricks. Oh, yes, yes, very good. Can't wait till 
that comes out. That's going to be awesome. When a new toy called Forky joins Woody and the gang, a road trip alongside old and new friends reveals how big the world can be for a toy. Forky? Who plays Forky? Um, let's see. Who plays Forky? Tony Hale? Oh, that's hilarious. What? Buster from Arrested Development. Oh, Keegan-Michael Key's in it, too. It's both uh, Key and Peele are in it. Excellent. I love it. Can't wait to see that. Oh, my gosh. No way. Of course. Of course Tom Hanks is playing Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. 2019. When's this one coming? November 22nd, 2019. Okay. Biography, drama. I think. I was probably a pretty big fan of... I'm sure I was a fan of Mr. Rogers when I was a kid. Who isn't? Who isn't? Just like the Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, all that jazz. Um, it's a timely story of kindness, triumphing over cynicism, based on the true story of a real-life friendship between Mr. Rogers and journalist Tom Juno. After a jaded magazine writer, Emmy winner Matthew Reese is assigned a profile of Fred Rogers... He overcomes his skepticism, learning about empathy, kindness, and decency from America's most beloved neighbor. I love it. When did Mr. Is he still? Is he alive? Is Mr. Rogers alive? I do not. Let's see. I Probably not, right? No, yeah, he passed away in February 27, 2003. He was 74 years old. Um, Let's see. Mr. Rogers quote you've made this day a special day by just your being you there's no person in the whole world like you and I like you just the way you are he's that's just what I remember about Mr. Rogers was that yeah kindness exactly like the nicest person in the world let's see another quote um when I was a boy I, and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. It's a Mr. Rogers quote. Here's another one. Play is often talked about as if it were a relief from serious learning. But for children, play is serious learning. Play is really the work of childhood. <laughs> That's funny. Um, here's one more. How sad it is that we give up on people are just like us dang that's so deep that's just why i remember he's like a dr phil for kids that's seriously mr rogers dr phil for kids like he like really knows how like how to talk i don't know what it was just maybe it was the kindness the like i think it's just like all like it's having like a good heart like that's it sounds super cheesy and corny but that's the cut and dry that's how, what it was I think some people maybe just have bigger hearts than others. Like they, some people, they're, um, like what they do with their lives, like the work that they do and like who they are, they, they just inspire and like touch like an incredible amount of people. And I think Mr. Rogers is probably one of those, he's one of those people that managed to connect. He connected with everyone. And I think this because people can recognize like a good heart. Like it's like, I think, I think we, we, we write people off as being like evil or bad, like too often. I think, I don't know. What am I trying to say? 
I'm trying to say, I think that, I guess we have been duped though. We've been f- like fooled as a, a society, like a few times for sure, of course. Like we all know, we all know the, the, the scandals that have broken in f- recent years. Like people, we had no idea that we thought they were one person, then it turns out they were a different person. But I guess that's just like my optimistic, positive way of looking at like humans and nature and life in general. Maybe I just want people to be good. I want people to be nice and have good hearts, so I look for it. I seek it, and I think that's what it is. I think if you seek goodness in the world, you'll find more. If you seek evil, if you look for bad things, then you're definitely going to see it more often. You're going to live a sad life. <laughs> that's I'm serious. Like you, That's like the number one thing that changed in my whole life is like positive is positive attitude it's it sounds like corny and like trite and like it doesn't sound real but i i think it's it is a completely real thing writing down positive thoughts goals like things you want to do things you want to accomplish just positive things about yourself looking in the mirror and smiling at yourself what like that's underrated like i think you should do that i think everybody should look in the mirror and smile at themselves in the morning, every time, every time you look in the mirror, I, like, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think, I don't think it's weird. I don't think it's weird at all. I think it's just, that's like treating yourself well. That's being kind to yourself. Like, why? I don't know. I think, I think people should smile more. Just smile at your, smile at yourself in the mirror. Give yourself a motivational speech in the morning. I do, I do it. Like, who doesn't? Look in the mirror and be like, you got this. You can do it. I don't know. I think we need to, like, rely on, like, ourselves, like, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's the old saying, you know? Like, you can you can do it, you know? You know you can do it, so. So so inspirational for me, just, I don't know, just hearing other people with, with their positive, positive thoughts and positive ideas, like, hearing other people talk about it, and then just accepting it, letting it into your life, like, I don't know, living it. Like it's like a lifestyle, I think. It's it's a it's a different thought process. It's changing of your thought process. Cause I remember when I used to be negative, <laughs> I used to look at things in a negative way. And that's no fun. That's like not a fun way to go about life. I think yeah, it just completely flipped everything, one eighty, changed everything. It's just all about your attitude. Huh? Enough no, that's so bucks. Wow, we're in the final credit. Oh my god, we guys, we did it, guys. We did it. I'm gonna turn the lamp on. It's gotten dark in my room. That's how long we've been going. It was light when we started, and now it's dark in my room. Wow, I'm just gonna before we read the final credit, Tom Hanks. And we've made it this far. We might as well just push on through. Let's read chapter six. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do chapter six. This is a short one here. Back to Night Hoops, guys. It's Carl Duker's Night Hoops. Chapter six, part five, baby. Here we go. I hardly slept that night. Sometimes I told myself that I had done the right thing, the only thing. A minute later, I'd be certain I'd totally blown it. It was probably 3 a.m. before I fell asleep, which made the alarm at six that much crueler. When I stepped outside the door to head to school, I peered over at Trent's house. It looked empty, but it often looked empty. I almost went over and knocked on his front door just to see if he was still there, but then I decided to let it go. 
Before my first period class, Martha Judkins came over and told me what a good game I'd played, how exciting it was to watch, and how she'd never been much of a basketball fan before. Any other day, I'd have been ecstatic to have her standing by my desk, leaning her body close. But that day, I kept looking past her to the door, which kept opening and closing, hoping the next person would be Trent. The bell rang. That's when I started lying to myself. Big deal that he wasn't there. If, if I'd had any sense, I'd have stayed home too. He was probably sound asleep. The talk about taking off to go live with Zach, it was all talk. He had a room and a bed and a mother who left him alone. Why would he go live on the streets? At lunch, Luke and Darren came right over to me. Where's Trent? Luke asked. Nobody's seen him all day. I shrugged. I guess he cut school. Today? Darren said in disbelief. He'll be at practice, won't he? Luke said. He wouldn't cut that. Sure, I answered. He'll be at practice. But he wasn't. As the guys suited up, I could see them looking around, wondering. On the court, a rack of basketballs was waiting for us. Pretty soon, guys were dribbling and shooting, doing the normal loosening up that we'd been doing for three months. To an outsider, things would have looked totally normal. But each time one of the gym doors opened, everybody stopped to look, hoping to see Trent. Coach O'Leary emerged from his office, blew his whistle. We circled around him. He scanned our faces. Where's Dawson? No one answered. He looked at me. Was he in school today? I shook my head. No, coach. His forehead wrinkled. What, is he sick or something? I guess so, I answered. Practice was light. We walked through our plays, then just shot around. What we needed was rest, and O'Leary knew it. When practice ended, I headed off to off the court, but before I reached the locker room, O'Leary called me over. What's up with Dawson? I looked down. There was too much to explain, way too much. Who knows? He's always been tough to figure. O'Leary frowned. Check on his house for me, will you? And if he's there, you have him call me, okay? Okay. He turned and headed toward his office. Coach, I called after him. What if he's not there? He turned back. Then you call me. Bum, bum, bum. Going to check to see if Trent's there. Things are heating up in night hoops. I love it. Love that book. All right. We've been, um, <coughs> we've been putting this off so long. Wow, let's just do something crazy. Let's do an end of the episode recipe reading from uh, Cooking the Fast Way, the Maywood Hills recipe book. <laughs> let's just throw out uh, another recipe for y'all here. This is cheesy potato bake. Sounds delicious. I love anything cheesy. I'm a cheese fiend. <laughs> Your ingredients? One large 32-ounce package of hash browns. One can cream of chicken soup. One stick of margarine melted. Two cups of sour cream. Two cups of cheddar cheese. Two cups of crushed cornflakes. A half onion finely chopped. Salt and pepper to taste. And directions, mix sour cream, soup, onions, salt, and pepper. Add melted butter, potatoes, and cheese. Spread it in a 9 by 13 pan. Cover with crushed cornflakes. Bake at 350 degrees for 45 to 50 minutes or until bubbly. Ooh, I like that, that imagery right there. Bubbly potatoes. Ooh, delicious. All right, let's do another <coughs> short little one here. And then... um. Wrap this baby up, baby. Oh my goodness. It's been a long one. This is from Paula Renfro, who's a fast member. 
and your ingredients for uh, Chuck Wagon Beans. Um, three or four slices of bacon, one pound of ground beef, a half cup of chopped onion, half cup of chopped celery, one or two cloves of garlic, a third cup of beef broth, a half cup of catsup, one tablespoon of mustard, two tablespoons of brown sugar, one tablespoon of molasses, and one large can of pork and beans. In directions, preheat the oven to 350 degrees, cut bacon into bite-sized bits, fry until crisp and set aside, saute onion, garlic, and celery. When partially done, add ground beef and brown thoroughly, salt and pepper mixture, remove excess grease and set aside, in two-quart saucepan on medium heat, mix beef, beef broth, catsup, mustard, brown sugar, and molasses, add beans and stir until mixed, add meat mixture, place in casserole dish and cover, bake at 350 degrees for 30 minutes. Bada bing, bada boom. Chuck Wagon Beans with some bacon in there. Ooh, bacon and onions and celery and garlic. That sounds delicious. And brown sugar and molasses? My God. My goodness. What's catsup though? What is catsup? Is that different than... Is catsup different than ketchup? Alright, now I gotta figure this out. Catsup? I think it's different. Is catsup... I'm sure this is the common question. I'm sure everyone says catsup versus ketchup. Are they the same? What's the difference? Here, here we go. We'll figure it out. Um, writing explained. What? Two, they're two different spellings of the same condiment. Ha ha ha. Very good. So, ketchup is a dominant spelling in both American and British English by a large margin. Um... But then why do people, who uses catsup then? If you are a writer in English-speaking countries today, ketchup is a spelling you want to use. Interestingly enough, if we examine the graph of catsup versus ketchup, I mean the graph, uh, we can see that the preference for ketchup, all things considered, is a relatively recent trend, starting sometime in the mid to late 1900s. Ah. So people used to call it catsup. But then they change. It's like when people say Washington. <laughs> they add an R to the middle Washington. Washington. I love it. Alright, there we go. Let's do um Tom Hanks' final IMDb credit right here. Baby. Oh my gosh, it's been what an episode we've had. What a journey this has been. 2020 movie. Bios. It's a sci-fi movie. On a post-apocalyptic Earth a robot... Um, built to protect the life of his dying creator's beloved dog, learns about life, love, friendship, and what it means to be human. Oh, so it's like a, it's like a Wall-E. Sounds like a Wall-E movie, <laughs> a spinoff. Oh my gosh! Good job, guys. I can't believe we did it. Let's uh, let's do a Mister Rogers quote, and then uh, do his top three and bond three, and wrap this baby up. Wrap this up like a burrito. Let's see, Mr. Rogers. I think of discipline as a continual everyday process of helping a child learn self-discipline. Mr. Rogers, parents are like shuttles on a loom. They join the threads of the past with the threads of the future and leave their own bright patterns as they go. Wow. 
That's a great one. That's a good one to leave it off on. Holy cow. Let's do it. Top three, bottom three. This is so tough for Tom Hanks. He's so many movies. So many good movies. Okay, top three. Man, this is going to be controversial. I can't believe... I got to put this one in my top three. I love this movie. The Burbs. Let's go with The Burbs. Let's go... Ooh. I think we got to go Toy Story 3. I feel like we got to put one of the Toy Stories. And then, um... I guess you got to go Forrest Gump. I haven't seen Castaway for a while, so... For top three, let's go... The Burbs, Forrest Gump, and Toy Story 3. Yeah, let's do those. Just because I think if I had to choose, I feel like I'd rather watch Toy Story 3 than Cast Away. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I could I could watch, like, I might just watch Naked and Afraid. It'd be the same thing. <laughs> just watch a Survivor Man or Bear Grylls, the show or something. There's plenty of those shows on TV nowadays. I don't need to see that. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's do bomb three. Bottom three, we will go. Now this is gonna be a tough one because I really these can be moves I have not seen. Let's go Dragnet from 1987. Let's go. Um, hmm. I suppose we do. These are all so many good ones. Road to Perdition from 2002. Never heard of that one. And then we'll do. Oh, we might as well do. Angels and Demons. That one sounded kind of corny. From 2009. There we go. Oh my gosh. That's your bottom three. That's your top three. That's your Tommy Hanks episode. I'm your host, Chris Arneson. Ah, oh, still holding it down here. Second floor of Coffee House Apartments in my room. Across the street from Washington State University. A Star is Born headquarters. Looking out at the... It's getting dark out there. It's already nighttime now. Oh my goodness, we've been talking for a long time to y'all. Oh my god, I love it. Go to my, check out my books. Um, Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble. Sponge Cake, a mostly made up story about a completely insane town and what's in the fridge. Check out my blog, Chris, um, thegoat1.blogspot.com and website, christtheauthor.com. And follow me Twitter, christtheauthor8 and Instagram, chrisarneson8. And thank you so much for share, share, sharing the podcast with a family member, friend, coworker, employee, everyone you know, anyone you know, doing it big, doing it real, doing it live, having fun, hoping you guys are having as much fun listening, at least half as much fun listening as I'm having doing it. I love, I love it. I'm having a blast. I love talking to, I just like talking if you can't tell. Talk, 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 chat, chat, chat. I got Got it. I, I love him. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. There's nothing else to say at this point. But I feel like I've said it all. Thank you so much for listening this far. You are truly a podcast aficionado. Truly a trooper. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, thanks Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for rating and reviewing on iTunes. Let's wrap this baby up. This is for Tom Hanks. This is for uh, Hank Toms. Closing time. Time for you to go home to the places where you belong. I know who I want to take me home. 
I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. Take me home. Closing time. Time for you to go home to the places where you. Be numb. Oh my gosh, guys. Thank you so much for making it this far with me. Thank you, thank you. I love ya. And I hope you have a great night. Hope you're doing well, wherever you're doing, wherever you're at. If you listen to this, uh, falling asleep right now, maybe whispering to you, have sweet dreams, uh, whispering in your dreams right now. Maybe sneak my way into your dreams. <laughs> That's the creepy, the creepy podcast guy. Hey, I'm in your dreams now. What's up? Or maybe you're out for a run or something. Maybe at the beach or at the library, at home, at work, at the gym, wherever you're doing, wherever you're doing, where you're at, wherever you're at, wherever you're at, whoever you are. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy you're here with me listening on a Stars Born podcast. I've been your host, Chris Arneson. I love you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you. Well, I am lying in bed just like Brian Wilson did. Hey, y'all. Hope you enjoyed the episode. This is a little snippet from my interview with Eric Bowen of the Eric Bowen Band. Uh... They're based out of Idaho, I believe Moscow. Um, he talks about it in the interview. It's just a little bit of it. This took place at Bucer's Coffee House and Pub in Moscow, Moscow, Idaho. Um, yeah, I did this last last spring, twenty not last spring, twenty seventeen, a couple years ago. So when I worked for the Daily Evergreen, check out all the uh, Daily Evergreen interviews I did. They're in the A Star's Born podcast feed. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for spreading the good word of the podcast, building this community, doing it big. Hope you enjoyed the episode. It was so much fun to do. It just did it. Uh, that was that was a blast. Oh my, over five hours of just talking, talking, talking. It was fun. But um, hope you didn't get confused at the start of part four with the abrupt t- talk right into right into cactuses, but cacti talk right away. That's how I like to do it. But anyway, here's a little bit of Eric Bowen. Here we go. Sweet Caroline, bum bum bum, good times never seem so good, so good, so good, so good. Really early on on piano, was I listened to a bunch of Ahmad Jamal, and... A lot of Count Basie, Count Basie Orchestra. Recently, it's been guys like Robert Glasper, who's a piano player. Corey Henry, it's like the man. Corey Henry? Yeah. Corey Henry is like the, the guy, right? Um, is he a piano player, too? Yeah, these are all pretty much piano players. All, all, all four of the aforementioned were... Where people were piano players, a lot of organ players too. I play some organ, so a lot of organ. Joey Di Francesco, Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, John Patton. You hit for John Patton? 
John Pan, man. Yeah. He's like the Boogaloo player that that uh, that Jimmy Smith wished he could be. Yeah. That that dude. Dude, I'm out key right now. Uh uh uh. You need a drum key? I might have one in the red box in my car. Do you see the van? I lost. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I lost my key at the alley. Thank you. I might have one. All right. That's a lesson right there. That's a lesson for all musicians. What? What was that? Is that uh, you keep a box in your car with a spare of everything you may need. So then, if you forget it and it just lives there, you don't ever take it out unless you need it, and then it immediately goes back into that box. So like if. Like all these pedals down here, I have an extra one in that box. I have every cable back here, I have an extra one of those. Cable for that speaker, microphone, everything. I have an extra. It just lives in the box. <laughs> the box. <laughs> yeah. And it lives in the car. And when I, if I change cars to, to my other car and go to a gig, the box goes with me. Because the worst thing you can be is like five hours away, yeah. you know, or, or out in the middle of nowhere. And something yeah. doesn't work. And then you have something in the spare that you know that does. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, thanks, Eric. Yeah. Have a good show. What's up, dude? Sure. All right. One sec.